This episode is supported by Dove. Over half the girls around the world suffer from low self-esteem, which causes them to opt out of important life activities and puts their health at risk. The Dove Self-Esteem Project is the world's largest provider of self-esteem education and teaches the next generation to feel comfortable in their own skin by working with schools and parents. Dove has created and uses educational, evidence-based resources that are designed to help young girls and boys reach their full potential. They cover topics like bullying and social media to help young people build a positive relationship with the way they look. You can get these printable resources to help increase self-esteem in young people in your life at dove.ca slash self-esteem. Alex. Yeah, Shane. Let's begin this episode. Let's do it. Hello, everyone. I'm Alex, and I'm here with my husband, Shane. The babies are in bed, the cat is in her room, and we are so glad that you could join us for happy hour. On this Family Tree podcast, episode 77. Secretly big episode. Secretly a huge episode, and I can guarantee that you will be on the edge of your seat for the whole thing. Alex, I, I always take it a high notch, and you always outdo it, and... Build, build it up too high. I don't think that's building up too high. These interviews that we have tonight are some of the most fascinating that we've ever done. I was on the edge of my seat just doing the interviews. <laughs> well, okay, so we have Sophie Jaffe first. So every now and then an interview opportunity comes along that I didn't necessarily plan for. And with Sophie, mm-hmm. this was one of those situations where someone presented Sophie to me and I read her bio and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. But it felt like it was within the confines of the health and nutrition Mm -hmm. angle, which, hey, that's great too. And I think that can be a wonderful interview. But right before the interview, we did some listening to her podcast and you stumbled across an article, which was... Yeah. So Sophie and her husband had gone through this period of extreme cheating ashley madison kind of stuff while she was extreme. pregnant well extreme yeah, cheating sounds like a weird <laughs> olympic event but uh and how she you know advocates for staying with a partner in that situation if you both want to do the work and about their relationship since that happened and how they've recovered and we get into it in incredible detail and Sophie is so candid her outlook on everything is so fascinating yeah she's very open and honest in a way that I wasn't expecting I didn't know if we should even broach this subject as it's not like it was in our list of questions that we had sent to her that Mm -hmm. we were going to be covering so you're becoming a little bit more brash than me Alex (laughs) so you're like I'm just going to ask it so I was on the edge of my seat leading up to this moment knowing that you were going to bring up this article about the infidelity within the relationship so I was like so when you ask I get a a lump in my throat I'm like you don't have to answer Uh, but she she was so forthright and forthcoming so comfortable in a way that honestly in this day and age is very rare it is and whether you have experienced infidelity in a relationship or you haven't or you know somebody who has her view and her outlook on everything is it's just going to be so interesting and so I think just chock full of you know some pearls of wisdom for you and she's a health enthusiast both mental and physical and she's very open to drugs like drug taking and she talks about that and it felt like such a judgment-free zone Mm -hmm. and that's the way I hope everyone listens to this I I like listening to different points of view I don't think I could be a person to take drugs and derive mental health benefits from it but the fact that she does and there's other people out there who can I love that Mm -hmm. no it's it's super fascinating and 
Following Sophie Jaffe, we have Leah Williams. She is also known as the Dearest Days. She is an Australian mommy blogger and she has, you know, I I thought we've heard harrowing birth stories in the past and we have, but what Leah sits down talks to us about is again, just a harrowing, fascinating story of birth and recovery and self-advocacy. She suffers from endometriosis and uh, that obviously makes pregnancy very risky. And she certainly, as you said, had a harrowing tale. And I was actually on the edge of my seat the whole interview because one it was late at night because when you interview someone from Australia (laughs) they are in the future so it was eight at night here when we started this interview and it was noon in Australia the the following day I'm not sure if interviewing someone at night makes me more emotional but I had like a lump in my throat listening to the story it really affected me and uh made me very thankful that I do not have to give birth and and that you're done with it. Because if you went through what she did, I don't know if I could handle that. I would still be probably suffering from PTSD. If you haven't had a kid yet, don't worry. Not all experiences are like it. Anyhow, Shane, shall we do a toast? We shall, yes. What What do we have here? Hey, we are playing it simple tonight. We got Seedlip Grove 42 with a little fever tree tonic. And it's just one of the tastiest, most what light and refreshing combos ever. It's true. Now, growing up, I hated tonic, but Fever Tree Tonic really is the greatest. I know. And it I know. goes perfectly with the seed lip. Great, refreshing drink. Non-alcoholic. We're not going to have a hangover in the morning, babe. Well, who knows what I'm going to be doing after this podcast. But yeah, <laughs> for now, we'll say we'll keep it alcohol-free, which is probably smart. Well, Shaney boy, what topics you got tonight? Topic one, Alex's birthday. Ooh, it's soon. She's turning 32. It's apparently her favorite. I'm so excited to turn 32. I've been excited to turn 32. I think when I turned 19, this was the next age Why, that I was though? looking that forward to. Why, though? That doesn't make sense. Because women peak. I read something oh. ages ago. I don't know if this is true, but apparently women peak at 32 years of age. And I feel it. I'm peaking, babe. You mean peaking sexually. Yeah, but I think that contributes to so many other things, like self-confidence, self-love, just general badassery. So you think being horny contributes to those other things in life? Well, I guess it definitely would contribute to self-love, but... (laughs) That's not what I mean by that. I think all those maybe contribute to the sexual peak of women at 32 years old, but I do have to research that and make see if that's like the actual biological thing. Are you going to look it up right now? Yeah. Because for men, it's like 18, and I read, again more than 10 years ago that it was 32 for women well what comes up on my first google search is one study showed that women between 27 and 45 had more frequent and more intense sexual fantasies than younger or older women women in their 30s typically that's their best decade because everything is just kind of and i think this would go for men too but everything is just kind of settled your friend group is crystallized you know you're probably or you might be where you want to be professionally just different things like that but I, I got to find the whatever article it was that I read that gave me the age of 32. Anyway, whether it's right, whether it's wrong, placebo effect, I'm feeling it and I'm very excited. Well, you being turned on aside, I am excited. Not in that way, Alex. <laughs> calm down. For the birthday in general, I find it to be my favorite birthday to get excited about is your birthday. And you had a theory that I found kind of funny. Well, yeah. So your birthday is May 12th. 
And my birthday being March 20th, first day of spring, it is our first foray into the world after a frigid winter. So it's like we've been cooped up, we've been inside not doing much. My birthday rolls around. It's the first birthday of the season for us, really. And we go and make a big thing out of it. And, you know, it's like our first steps out. But why wouldn't I be able to do this? May is a similar vibe to Yeah, March. but this is the first time. It's like... The first time we do it is in March after like being cooped up all winter. So it just has that extra awesome feeling because it's just this time where we get to go out and have a great time. And I think because we've been cooped up leading up to my birthday, we just have a better time because of it. You know what I mean? Or it could be because my birthday falls on Mother's Day, which is basically <laughs> a second birthday for you. So yeah. it's like I have no birthday. My birthday is also Lucy's birthday, our daughter. So... My birthday really is, uh, I'm nothing. I was going to say, I delivered you a child on your birthday, which is a pretty great present. Oh, it is. But it, all it says is you're definitely not having a birthday. If you, <laughs> if you didn't have a birthday before, you certainly do not have a birthday now. And I'm fine with that. That's great. And it was a great gift and produced one heck of a viral TikTok video. I mean, it's almost at 200,000. Ooh. What? Um, <laughs> Sorry, that woo threw me off. <laughs> You're leaving this in. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it in. Yeah. I was excited, babe. You are almost 32. Nah. It doesn't take much. Um, I already got a plan for your birthday, babe, and I'm super excited for it. Yeah, but it's Lucy's birthday, too. Yeah, well, screw her. She's staying home. We're getting a babysitter. We'll celebrate. You know, it's like we'll do a daytime thing hers, nighttime thing yours. But it's also Mother's Day and there's so many moms and you're a mom and it just doesn't have the same vibe. And I, I don't want to dissuade you from doing anything because, hey, I love <laughs> I love good things happening. But I just feel like that's ah, not worth it. Oh, man. Defeatist, I'm going to make you change your mind this year. So this year it is your 38th year. And no, it'll be my 39th year. You're turning 38? Turning 38, I'll be in my 39th right, year. Right, right, okay. So your year of being 38 in your 39th year, I will make you change your tune. Okay. All right, it's a 40 challenge. is all I ask. 40 is the only birthday I really want. I already got that planned out. You do? I, I'm going to tilt, right? The, yeah, the arcade? we're renting out the arcade. Or if we're not going to rent it out because maybe that's like a rich person thing, we'll at least just get a ton of people there so it's like we've rented it out. We have to rent it out. I don't care how much it costs. I'll rent it out. What if it is five grand? Pfft, do it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Yeah, but that's what I wanted to talk about, actually. TikTok. Now, we've had two videos with over 100,000 views. Mm -hmm. And I'm ready to commit to TikTok. I'm done with this podcast. What? I'm done with it. I'm just... Like, I don't mean to brag or anything here, but this podcast is doing fine. It yes. doesn't need me. I no longer need to work so hard on. So uh -huh. I'm going to be delegating every single piece of this podcast to other people. There's a website called Fiverr.com where I can just hire people to do Why is it things. called Fiverr? Do, do the jobs like cost like $5 increments? I don't know. It's just kind of like Uber. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why it's Fiverr. It's two V's in it. Oh, interesting. So I want to put all my efforts into TikTok. One, I have way more fun editing a TikTok video than I would a podcast. Right. Listening to the same conversation that you've already had <laughs> can drive you mad. Well, uh, not to rap here, but it sounds ridiculous, by the way. I'm like 40 years old almost. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm going full-time TikTok. But we are oddly being, 
I don't know, harassed online by someone who's reporting all of our videos. So that's making it a little bit uh, stressful. Like innocent videos, videos that do not require reporting. And it's blowing my mind because I don't like it, it feels like I think they have our notifications turned on. So they get notified the second we post something and it will be up for 10 seconds and it's reported for a random reason. Like it's 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 weird, right? Uh, yeah, it is weird. I had a video. It's even bled into my Instagram, which there was a video of Lucy singing down by the bay and she's just at this cottage and she's shirtless. It got reported for some sort of like indecent exposure. And that really weirded me out. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that being reported? Yeah. So I actually, the second that happened, like the second you told me it happened, I went to all my friends' profiles who have sons and I looked at their profiles. There's so many shirtless photos of their sons, whether it's just walking around the house, swimming, whatever. And it's like, what, why, what's wrong with that? And But the argument too is, and this is what you said, you were like, oh, because it's not about you thinking it's weird. It's about pedophiles and people like yeah. that who are turned on by it. But I think wouldn't a pedophile be turned on by a little boy shirtless too? Mm -hmm. So it's either like allow all topless children or don't allow any. Yeah. And this video got taken down. It got appealed and it got put back up. But here, here's the part that's kind of shitty to me. The people who run this uh, appeal process go, oh, it's fine. And they put it back up. But instead of the video, they just put a screen grab up and my video has gone now. And I didn't save that video because often I use Instagram, which is mm -hmm. a bad move, as a way to save things for posterity. Yeah. And so this cute moment of Lucy singing down by the bay is now gone. For yeah. me, and I, and I love that moment, but it's just now this terrible screen grab of just Lucy, I don't know, all blurry. No, it's, it's, it's really weird, and it's infuriating. And I'm trying to think, like, who would do this? Like, is this just a random person who doesn't know us, who's just decided to take issue with us? Or is this somebody we know? Like, does somebody have a vendetta against us? Do you think there's anybody you could have pissed off enough? I'm sure. <laughs> recently though could be anyone wow it's i don't know it's odd i don't like it please stop doing it i guess yeah that if that doesn't stop them nothing will <laughs> thank you alex something else that happened lucy has found her clitoris yes and so every night we brush her teeth lucy takes a pee but now she's found her clitoris and she's it scared her in a way now, now she's scared to go pee she wants to just go pee in her diaper she's asking me a million questions about it why it's there <laughs> what it does and i'm embarrassed to admit i don't i don't know i don't know i don't <laughs> know what to tell her Shocking. i'm already at the phase where i'm like oh you got to talk to your mother and, and i brought her into your room to kind of I'm like you explain what the clitoris is <laughs> well she she kind of showed me she's like mommy what is this and i said oh it, it's it's this and she was freaked out because she thought it was like stopping her from being able to pee properly or she thought that it had just kind of popped up for some reason and it wasn't there before so it is kind of funny to see her going through this and to see shane kind of sweating because you've been so great with using proper names for things you know everything's anatomically correct this was just a funny circumstance of something that we never you know yeah, we're fine was, vulva I, vagina whatever i was stumbling a little bit i'm like oh it's an it's an extra part on your vagina i said and you know the difference between vulva and vagina you should have said it's an extra part on your vulva oh vagina is the where the baby comes out that's the shoot so the vagina is the hole yeah 
Okay. Vulva is the... The everything on the outside. Okay. So what I meant to say was it's an extra part on your vulva. I said vagina. So now every night she goes, is the extra part on my vagina still there? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, it is. But geez, yeah, I, it's it's tough for me. Like I feel like I could handle a boner better than a clitoris, which is definitely the soundbite for this episode. If we're if, right. if we were going to title an episode, that that would be it. But uh, yeah, I, and I, again, I just think that's because you're male. You have a penis. You're oh, I know used to that, that kind yeah. of. Thing. I know that, but it's like even when we were talking about using anatomically correct names for body parts, we didn't really bring that into it right and like am i gonna do we have to sit down with a diagram do we have to talk about the labia majora and everything like that for me that would be helpful yeah okay, well, uh, i'd be happy to <laughs> just because yeah the vagina thing still screws me up i'm like hey, vulva vagina i'm just guessing do you know where the urethra is no that's where the pee comes out right it is yeah good job so me yeah maybe we will sit down with a diagram for sure yeah i'm all, <laughs> I'm all for it and yes, very thematic topics today. I wanted to talk about Facebook reminders. Mm. Now, are you scared when a Facebook reminder pops up? Yeah, it's often like a you know, memory with like a weird ex-boyfriend or a shameful time in college. Yeah, wish they would stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like it because then I can go back and delete things if it's like embarrassing in any way. But today, a Facebook reminder that popped up, I was over your shoulder, was you with, uh, you had a crutch, you were on a <laughs> beach, uh, your brother Jake was looking all buff, and you were wearing a weird like crop top with a, a woman on it with a <laughs> snake wrapped around her and like flames. <laughs> or, I don't know what was <laughs> going on, but what was that? Okay, so there's... A couple t-shirt stores in Hamilton that were like uh, rock t-shirts and they'd have like all your favorite band t-shirts. called Rock and Tees? One was Rock and Tees, one was the Rock Museum. And I got it at one of those places. So they'd have every single band t-shirt you could ever imagine. But then they'd also have these just like random in the style of rock and roll t-shirts. So this one just had some babe in a bikini with a moon behind her with a wolf, I mm -hmm. think, maybe a snake too. Just... To, yeah, it was weird. And it was a questionable shirt to bring on Why did family you get that? vacation. Yeah, a family. It's a picture of you and your dad. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, like, what I, I wonder this often. I'm sure lots of people with children do. How is my daughter going to be in the future? And it's like, then the story behind this, because I'm like, oh, why do you have crutches? And it's like, oh, the night before, we were supposed to go on our family ski trip vacation. So already I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, ski trip, you're on a beach here. You're like, I broke my ankle dancing atop a bar. Well, like it was, it was Coyote a stage. Ugly style. No, not on a bar. It was a stage, like a platform stage. You've seen me dance. You know I am not graceful. And so you fell off the stage? I tumbled off the stage and broke my foot. And then your parents call an audible. They say, we're no longer going on the ski trip. We're going on a beach trip. <laughs> yeah. That has to be a nightmare. So you're all hungover <laughs> with a broken ankle. Like, how did you break the news to them? No pun intended. Well, I, I guess I just must have called my dad that night and been like, dad, I can't ski. And like, so embarrassed. Were you crying? Probably. I'm always crying. And then what was the next day like? Was it awkward? Of course. Everybody's silently disappointed, but also kind of happy we get to go to a beach. Like, you know, it's it's weird. Did you have a cast on? I had a walking cast and a crutch. Who took you to the ER? I, I went by myself. I was in London. Hmm. So I was just like in my university town uh, with my roommates and I just, I went Did on you my drive own. to the beach or fly? We flew. And were you hung over the entire flight? 
<laughs> I can't remember. No. But it was great in a sense because because of my broken foot, we had like got to board on the plane first. We got to leave first and we had, you know, preferential treatment at the hotel. I got to get like they gave me a beautiful cabana by the pool just because I had to sit with my leg up. And then with my good foot, I was like crutching along the beach one day. And then on my good foot, I stepped on a jellyfish. So then no. I had, I'm not kidding. I have a photo of the <laughs> jellyfish. It, it yeah. popped up today too. And I had no feet that I could use. So I was just in this cabana, like reading my books for my Russian history class and had like waiters waiting on me. My dad and my brother were waiting on me. It was kind of nice. Wow. Man, <laughs> you're so lucky that you have your dad and not my dad. <laughs> Oh my goodness, you would have been in so much trouble. Well, he probably wasn't happy. And I, I mean, I can guarantee he wasn't happy. He was probably like, you know, But the way he reacted was probably like, oh, sweetheart, that's fine. No, he probably yeah. was like, you're dumb, but hey, let's go to the beach. I can use some sun anyway. The way your parents are able to, I don't know, roll with the punches is amazing. Like to me, that's the exact opposite of my parents. So I couldn't, like you telling me that story, <laughs> I, I started sweating because that would have never flew with, with my family. But here's the point, like why spend time I agree. getting pissed off about things like that, ruining a family trip because of something like that and making your kid feel like shit over it because it's... It's just not, it's not worth it when you can have a beautiful time. I agree. And when you don't have that disposition, it, it doesn't make sense. It's like, why would anyone choose that disposition? Mm -hmm. But as a person with a weird disposition that I'm always at odds with, because my philosophy is not the way I act. And luckily with my own children, I don't seem to have a short trigger. No, you are so relaxed when mm -hmm. it comes to girls. Like, and you have such a great way of talking lucy down when she's in the middle of a tantrum or like today she hit betty out of nowhere oh, spanked her on the bum yeah, yeah and you were really good at talking to lou i don't know what the heck you said to her but she came right out and said sorry to betty and gave her a hug and a kiss and she hit me the other day same thing came out said sorry mm -hmm. you you have a really great way and i think it's from experiencing that yourself and yeah. knowing how you don't want to make a kid feel yeah but just as a partner, I don't want to be that way with you. So I'm trying to take a page out of John and Lorna and be way more chill. So let's see how long this lasts. <laughs> <laughs> Can I help in any way? Like, is my is my chillness um, infuriating or is it contagious? It's both. Because here's the thing. At certain times, you want a person like you. You need a person mm -hmm. like you. At certain very stressful, overwhelming times, I need that refreshing breeze. But at other times, when things actually need to be done and it's down to brass tacks, I just want somebody who can get things done at all costs. Mm -hmm. So most of the time, I'd, I'd like to have you around. But <laughs> hey, nine times out of ten, I will take two Alex's over two Shane's. Well, I have a lot of hope for Easy Breezy Shane, and I Thank think you. that this can happen. Already with the longer hair, babe, like you are starting to look the part, and I'm feeling it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I want you to all relax and listen to this interview with Sophie Jaffe. But first, Alex, tell us who we are supported by. We are supported by Bravado Designs. Bravado Designs makes 
the best nursing bras. Shane, wouldn't you say so? I would say they're definitely the best nursing bras. And do you take credit for basically telling our entire audience about how great they are? Well, it did happen because of me. I found the bra. I gave it to you. I didn't know it was going to be so great, but sometimes things work out like that. <laughs> it is the best nursing bra. And even after I finished nursing Lucy, I still wore it because it was just so comfortable. However, now Bravado Designs has their everyday collection. They don't have clips, but it's the same amazing comfort for your boobs. You can get the nursing bras at bravadodesigns.com or head to the Canadian website for access to the everyday collection at ca.bravadodesigns.com. But regardless of which website you go to, use the promo code thisfamilytree20 for 20% off. Again, that's bravadodesigns.com and thisfamilytree20. But now let's get to this interview with Sophie Jaffe. Before we get into it, I want to give a trigger warning as we discuss self-harm, drug use, and body image in the coming interview. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today, and we are so excited to talk to you. One of the main things I want to get into, you know, you are like a wellness guru online. You're a health expert I've seen you described as. You're into yoga, intuitive eating, superfoods, everything like that. So in regards to that lifestyle, what is something that people assume about you that is not true? I like this question. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Um, I think probably the most, I would say the assumption that most people probably have is that I like eat a perfect diet that, you know, maybe someone that doesn't know me well or hasn't followed in a, for a while, but I think even like our brains like to categorize. That's what we like to do is put things in nice little tidy boxes. And so I think people assume that because I love wellness and promote clean beauty and clean eating and superfoods and I do yoga that I have like this perfect eating, perfect life, you know, I don't have any problems. But most importantly, I think that people just think like, because I promote those healthy things that I'm just like the healthiest and I never cheat or have, you know, other cravings or eat fast food or any of those things. And that's just not true. You know, you are this big person in the wellness and fitness world. Why? Where does that start? Like, where did that journey start with you? Were you always into this or did you leave lead ever a different kind of lifestyle? Yeah. So I've been in wellness in the wellness world since I was 18. I mean, I think I've always been really interested in health wellness. My mom's a holistic nurse practitioner. I grew up on the East coast. I was only given homeopathic medicine when I was sick. She really focused on, she loved homeopathics. If I was nauseous, if I was sick, if I had a cold, like the first thing was Eastern modalities of healing, which was really cool. I didn't know that it was cool at the time. I thought it was weird, <laughs> but it worked. I remember it working very, very well. And I think that that's set the tone for the way that I heal myself now, like it only takes a little bit for me to heal in all different capacities mm -hmm. of, of healing, you know, not just that, like anything and everything, it just takes a little bit. And I'm like, Oh, I feel better. So it started at a young age in regard to how um, my mom treated us. And she was our doctor in air quotes, because she was a nurse practitioner and we didn't go to a doctor's office. I hadn't set foot in a hospital until I had my first child. Oh my gosh. So it, yeah. So it was, it was wild to be, you know, I was young. I was 25 when I got pregnant and 26 when I had my first, who's 10 now. But yeah, I think being exposed to Eastern modalities of healing, being exposed to kind of like weird, like healing through food, like things when you're a child are like, why don't we just take regular medicine? And now I'm really grateful for all of that because it set the tone. Mm -hmm. I do think that I have a good balance of, of Eastern and Western and 
just taking in all the things and ways to heal. But most importantly, my foundation is in is in mm-hmm. that way. of, And I think that that's what makes my world so different. Like when I share on my Instagram or I share on my blog or anything in my experience with my clients, what makes me unique is that I'm not, I don't put everything in one box. I don't say we're only doing Eastern natural ways of healing. We're only, you know, doing Western. It's I take into account all of it. You can heal mm-hmm. through food. You can heal through Western meds. Sometimes there's a, a, a time and a place for both. So mm-hmm. for all of it. And, you know, you said the word weird. So I'm kind of going to piggyback on that. Mm-hmm. So I loved when the Goop Labs, the Gwyneth Paltrow show came out. I don't believe in all of that, but I love watching that. And I think it's so fascinating to see how different people approach wellness. But a lot of it is bullshit. Some of it is bullshit. And I want to know what you've experienced that you like at one point maybe in your life got into and then you're like, hold on, there's nothing to this. Ooh. Well, I first want to say when I when that show came out, the Goop Lab, I was actually so excited because bringing it into the mainstream, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's stuff that I had known about for years and, and love, truth or not, I believed in it. And that's, you know, placebo effect is very yeah. real. <laughs> And I was just really grateful that she was putting that information and content out there because I think that our world needs to have more of a normalized opinion about those types of Mm. weird things, again, in air quotes. Like, have you ever gotten into a health trend that was bullshit, like snake oils or I don't know, things like that? I think that. First of all, I want to say this up front is that I don't think there's a one size fits all for anyone. I think that the worst thing we can do for our bodies and minds and souls and spirits is just like carbon copy what someone else does and think that that's right. I think we all have unique blueprints, mind, body, physical, all of it. And that, you know, what you do for your health and your healing is is different than what's going to work for me. So I want to say that right off the bat, because I think we all try and just like emulate what other people are doing and we compare ourselves. And that's actually just such a, a negative cycle to be in. And then we're not tuning in to our own innate needs and desires and wants. Mm-hmm. But I think that probably the craziest, dumbest things I did were in my early 20s, living in LA, right in the heart of Hollywood, working at a juice bar with huge celebrities in and out every single day. And I would just like go raw vegan for weeks, months at a time, which yeah, I don't know if you know what raw vegan is, but basically it's like vegan on crack. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you take the <laughs> vegan diet and then you take it up a notch and you only eat foods that are cooked to a certain temperature or just never um, heat affected. So the magic number is like pretty much around 120, 130 degrees. And you don't want it to be above that. And that's, it's just like a not very realistic way to live, especially as a parent. So it obviously dwindled away quickly, but I think it sucked me in. And it's again, like we were talking about in the beginning, putting yourself in a box and thinking that Like, that's the way it has to be. Like, Mm -hmm. I was crazy. It made me psychotic. I was like, am I allowed to have tea? Like, (laughs) tea tea is one of the most healthy, beautiful things in the world. And literally, I remember looking through my book like a psychopath, like, can I have tea? Well, it's above that temperature. Like, it just, it consumed me in anything, anything that consumes you to that level, Mm -hmm. whatever diet it might be, whatever thinking, meditation can be the most positive thing. If it's consuming you, then it's, I don't think it's a healthy thing. Do you think you got into that initially to look a certain way or was it to feel a certain way? I was just in this world, this vortex at this juice bar, like everyone was raw vegan. It was a, it was a juice bar. So it was like juices, smoothies, tonics, 
raw foods that I was trained by a raw food chef who's amazing. And, you know, I owe so much to, but like, it just became this way of being. And it was like like-minded people. And I think it was also intriguing because I had never, I was young. It was Mm -hmm. maybe 20 when I was doing this. So I had never really manipulated my food before. I lived in a small town in Maryland and I didn't read trashy magazines. I didn't look at other, I just, I kind of lived in a bubble and Mm -hmm. just thought I was beautiful the way I was. And I didn't try and manipulate my body in any way. I was athletic. I played sports, but I, I never thought I was fat. I never thought I was skinny. I just loved myself. And then I moved to LA and it got a little complicated. You know, it's just early twenties. You start to look at other people. You start to compare yourself. There's people with plastic surgery. There's people going on diets. And this is true anywhere, but I think it's especially heightened here. So it was a mixture of all of it. I think it was a curiosity at the age I was mm-hmm. being early twenties, like, oh, so I can eat less or I can eat more and I can manipulate the way I look and then I can work out more. And, you know, just having this control that was, that was a newfound control and enjoying it a little bit. It's kind of like this dark, like, Ooh, I, it's like your own little dirty secret, you know? And so I think like controlling in that way, what started out really innocent just because I was around these amazing people and they all loved it and they all seemed to be beaming with energy. And then the more that I did it, the more energy I felt. And so I think it's a mixture of all those different things. But then at a certain point, like I said, with like looking up if I could have herbal tea, it just became ridiculous and obsessive. So I assume none of these raw vegans were even drinking alcohol then. Well, there was a lot of you know, they're like people that work there then go down the street and smoke cigarettes. And I'm like, I don't understand. Like at least go two blocks away. Why are you, you're representing our store? I was so naive. I was just like, how could you smoke cigarettes? That's so anti, you know, what we're trying to push here. Yeah. But I think it's, it's just normal human nature and, you know, people just try and figure out the best they can what they're doing. And I think that some people worked there just for a paycheck and that I didn't understand that. Why did you move to LA? Cause obviously mm. there was probably a raw juice bar where you lived before Maryland. Were you chasing something? Were you an actress? Did you want fame? No, not even. I lived with my mom on the East coast and my brother, and that's where I grew up. And my dad moved to LA when I was 13. And so I would visit several times a year, my dad and my stepmom. And it was a great childhood. I would come for holidays. I'd come in the summer. I'd bring friends. It was amazing, especially the difference between the stark difference between a small town USA and then coming to LA to visit a few times a year. I think I I just really wanted to live with my dad. I just wanted a chance at kind of balancing that. I was always chasing my dad, trying to get him to give me the attention I wanted and craved because I didn't grow up in a home with him. My parents divorced when I was like between six and eight, they separated Mm -hmm. when I was six. So I think I just finally, when I had my freedom and I was old enough, when I was 18, I just, I was like, I'm moving to LA. So, you know, you talk about being really into this lifestyle until you're looking up, like, can I have a herbal tea and realizing how, you know, ridiculous and restrictive that might be. How do you heal that? And how do you grow from saying, okay, like I'm only going to eat raw vegan to expanding your diet and expanding your, uh, I guess, definition of what health is? Yeah, I mean, it was a long road. I'm not going to say that it was easy. Hold on one second because my kids, if you can hear that above me. (laughs) They're jumping rope up there, yeah. They're playing with something like it's insanity. Okay. So your question was like, how do you, how do you recover? And just, you know, cause your idea of health and I guess beauty and what fitness and wellness is at that point, you know, it's changed. So how did you change that and like get yourself kind of sucked out of that mindset? 
I mean, it was a, a very long journey. I'm not going to lie. It was something that took a lot of time and a lot of patience, a mm-hmm. lot of mistakes, a lot of trust to not just go from one controlled way of eating because I was raw vegan for about a year, year and a half. And then I was vegan for like six, seven years. And that was 100% a way to just control Mm -hmm. so that when I went to restaurants, I'm like, Ooh, can I, this will limit at least the calories that I could have. And it wasn't a conscious thing then, but now I can see very clearly that it was. So it was a long journey. It was seven, eight years of just being in this, like in, in the beautiful ways, it was discovery and it was curiosity. And then in kind of like the darker not so healthy ways. It was a way to control and Mm -hmm. manipulate and, you know, avoid my feelings and avoid confronting, you know, emotions and things that were going on in my life that I should have had better coping skills for. Mm -hmm. But it's all a learning experience. And without that, I wouldn't have the appreciation for intuitive eating and for the, the freedom that I'm in now. I wouldn't have that appreciation. And just as I tell my kids, you know, like you have to have the bad days to feel the good or it just wouldn't feel as good. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes for now. There's not a day that goes by that I'm not so grateful for the way that I eat now and the way I treat my body and the love and the flexibility and the freedom is just, it would, I don't know that it would be this good without all of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and how how old are your kids right now? They're 10, 8, and 2 and a half. Okay. So especially the older two, you know, they're getting to that age where they start to notice how we look at ourselves. Even my three-year-old, she sees me putting oh. on makeup and she's like, why are you putting on makeup? And I struggle with how to answer her and I struggle with what to say because I don't all the time. But when I do, I'm like, yeah, what the hell am I doing? Like, what message am I sending? So Yeah, I think there's a balance in all of it and it's about – like not one thing is inherently bad, you know, and it's about your relationship with that and really tuning into like, I love putting on a little bit of makeup and some beautiful clothes to celebrate my body and to enhance the beauty I Mm -hmm. already have. I'm not trying to erase who I am in any way. I'm trying to enhance, enhance who I am. And I think, you know, anything like that, same thing goes for even like plastic surgery or Botox or any, anything where we, you know, you can go very far in the wrong direction where you're, you know, like Adi and I were just looking, my husband and I were looking yesterday. He was like, I can't even recognize this person anymore. Mm-hmm. She's had so much work done. I was like, I don't know that she sees that about herself because it's like a slippery slope where you get a little bit. And then over the years, you're just like, you wake up one day and you're a different person than where you started. Mm-hmm. Well, your baseline changes, right? So exactly. Shane and I talk about that too, because I was telling him yesterday, we're brushing our teeth before bed. And I was like, at least once a day, I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh man, I want Botox. And then at least once a day, I'm like, I want to rebel and never wear makeup and never get Botox or anything. And it's hard to kind of balance those two opinions that I have. It's so hard, but it changes your baseline. It's called being human. It's (laughs) called being human. Now it's like, yes, and. I mean, if I I think if I lived in the middle of nowhere and like just in my little village and didn't see anyone, I wasn't on camera all the time, like I probably would do the same thing. I mean, I know I would. It wouldn't Mm. wouldn't matter. But when you're putting your image out there constantly and, and, you know, there's a lot of ridicule and there's a lot. It's not even about other people. Like I then judge myself if I feel like I'm not – like we said, with enhancing a little bit of makeup, Mm -hmm. a little bit of beautiful clothes, like that enhances the beauty that's innately within you anyway. And if that makes you feel more confident, by all means, like I got Botox, I'm 36, I'm almost 37. I got Botox once when I was 30, because it was free for a partnership. And I was like, sure, why not? And I (laughs) said, I'm not sharing this. This is not on brand. And I was like, not fully in my power yet of like Mm -hmm. owning who I am. 
And then this past year, a few months ago in January, I got, I'm 36 and I, I was like, yeah, I want to go. And I have no shame about it. Mm -hmm. No shame about it because it's something that makes me feel better and more confident. And that's all that matters. I'm not changing who I am. I'm not less of myself. I'm not obsessed with it. It's not a slippery slope. I'm not like, now I need to get my lips done and my no, like I'm, I'm perfect the way I am. And it's okay to want beautiful things. It's okay Mm -hmm. to want to feel beautiful and to dress up sometimes. And it's okay to have a, a week of no makeup too. And just be in sweats the whole time. It's all great. It's about checking in with yourself. Same as we were talking about with food, you know, foods are not inherently bad or good. Mm -hmm. I can have ice cream tonight from Ben and Jerry's and like eat the whole pint. And it's beautiful. If I have beautiful thoughts about myself and I'm not thinking, oh, I'm, I'm doing this bad thing and I'm going to get fat from this. And Mm -hmm. it's the thoughts that we think and the relationship we have to that thing. And when I want ice cream, I'm going to own it and be like, we're all having ice cream or I'm having ice cream and own it and embrace it Mm -hmm. and love it and feel it. And, you know, and that energy of loving and accepting it in that way is so much more profound. And that's the energy in which you're absorbing it, not the, it's not about the food. It's about mm-hmm. the way that you're talking to yourself and the way that you're absorbing it by having that thing, whatever it is, mm-hmm. like even the, the Botox, yeah. same yeah. thing. It's like, I don't even think of it as a poison. I'm just mm-hmm. like, like I do lots of like, you know, <laughs> back to that very first question of like, what do, what are assumptions people make? I think that a lot of times in wellness, you put people in a box and you just think like, they just, they're perfect. They don't do anything wrong or bad. And like, no, I own it. I love doing recreational drugs. I, it, it makes me a better wife and a better mother and, you know, all safely, of course, of course, but it's all of those things. I drink sometimes, sometimes it doesn't serve me sometimes for months on end. I don't want to drink, yeah. but other times I'm like, I want to drink yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. And I think as I get older, it, I I'm learning to own these parts of like the darkness of life, the lightness, the like ebbs, the flows, all of it is what makes us who we are. And that's, mm-hmm. that's being human. And you, that is actually, that's very poetic. And you said that so poetically and so beautifully. And I think that you have an incredibly unique perspective on that, especially and with your experiences. And I want to, for the listeners, I'm sure you've read this. So I found an article on you and I was just doing my background. The title of the article, Wellness Expert Sophie Jaffe on Using MDMA to Deepen Connection, Overcoming Infidelity, and Why Mental Health is Imperative to Being a Good Parent. So I was like, whoa, like just speaking so freely about MDMA. And then I read the first, you know, couple sentences. Discovering your husband's secret sex addiction in Ashley Madison account when you're newly married and pregnant with your first child together isn't the type of thing most couples typically go public about. But then again, neither is your own one night stand, two kids, tons of therapy, and several years deep into your marriage. And I was floored. um, Floored, Sophie. um, What article is that? (laughs) I don't. Like, was that put out without your consent? And by the way, we we don't have to talk about this at all. I am happy to talk about okay. anything. That's not what I'm upset. I'm just like curious about which I don't remember all of those headlines being in one place. So I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> she just found it seconds okay. before we came on and I was like, what? You're the, like, holy crap. It's happy at, Friday. <laughs> okay. It's called this is like milfs.thedoppel.com. It's for cool and stylish little monsters. I don't really know what this is. <laughs> yeah, that's like a, a kid's clothing line. Like, good for them. That's wow. right. I remember that now. Okay. It's a kid's clothing line. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Adi and I, my husband and I have been through hell and back. We, we have been together 16 years. 
we met when I had a fake ID at 20 years old. We were at UCLA together. I was an undergrad. He was in his grad, his first year of his grad program in psychology. And we fell in love. He's 28. I was 20. And I had only had one very dysfunctional, abusive relationship before that that lasted five years. Wow. And so I was like, I came in with all my baggage. I was young, very young. He had been to jail uh, as a drug. And if you meet him, like, I still am like, who are you? <laughs> and I was just like, remember your past life when you, because it's just like, he is the smartest, wisest, kindest, mm-hmm. best human on the planet. And he went to jail for being a drug addict and a drug dealer. Well, went to jail for being a drug dealer and also was addicted to meth and like had this oh, whole past life before I met him. And he's a doctor now, correct? And he's a PhD, his wow. PhD in psychology and he's helping addicts wow. free themselves from this way of thinking that once an addict, always an addict and all the shame and the stigma. So he works on, we have a company together, Ignited, and that's what our podcast is, is the Ignited Relationships podcast. But then he has this whole platform where he's helping People who consider themselves to be addicts, quotes, quotes again, um, he doesn't believe that that's true always for everyone and that there's not only one way to heal being AA, there's lots of ways to heal. And for him, it's it's really getting to the root problem about why you're doing that thing. Mm-hmm. It's not about the drugs, right? We actually have very similar philosophies. Like mm-hmm. me with food, it's like there isn't one food that's bad. It's your relationship to it. It's what it brings up for you. So very similarly, he believes in moderation mm-hmm. and he believes that like not everyone has to be abstinent. He wrote a book called The Abstinence Myth. So yeah, that's his life's work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because of his past experience and and really hitting rock bottom and going to jail and, you know, LAPD, like gun in his room like crazy SWAT team and he went to jail for a year and the only reason he went for that short amount of time is because he's a he's a white male that's Jewish right like right privilege he had like nine felony counts oh my god it's crazy and so now all of that's done and gone Mm -hmm. it's been expunged it's no longer but it's part of his story it's part of who he is and it's part of what made me fall in love with him and he told me right off the bat about it all and He's like, this is the this is the point where now you leave. Like every woman then <laughs> just leave. And that's I'm like, scary. I'm like, wow. no, I'm here. That's that's beautiful. That's mm-hmm. your story, and that's why you're so magnetic, and that's why you're gonna like he wakes up in the morning with so much just inspired energy pulsing mm-hmm. through him. Like I thought that I was like a lively, excited, optimistic person. Like then I met him. He's just on a different level because he's living in his dharma and his truth so much so. Um, But yeah, so we fell in love and it was like, we came in with all this stuff that we hadn't properly dealt with. And then we were like trying to make it work. And his drug addiction kind of morphed into sort of sex addiction. It was more like the lies and the, he had like an an online life that was not his real name. And then I found all of that. And then, you know, in the beginning when we were dating, he cheated on me and then came and told me. And it just is like, that's our, our dharma together mm-hmm. is like, we just have this dynamic, like our karma is this, it's like this, we're, we're here to grow together. We're here to help each other maximize our growth opportunity on this planet and this time of living. And we are so clear on that. Like we, trigger each other, we bring stuff up. And then we now know how we have all the tools after 16 years, of how to deal with it. And mm-hmm. yeah, so obviously, those are headline things. But the reality is, is that we try everything. And we're not going to say, because this thing is a legal drug, we're not going to try it. 
we don't know. We don't know if ayahuasca is good for us. We don't know if MDMA is. So we're just going to try things and see. And for us, what's really worked for me personally, I'll speak for myself. MDMA has been the most healing thing for my sexual trauma, for the the trauma that we went through together, me personally, and my last abusive relationship, the amount of growth and healing and connection that we had just he and I Mm -hmm. in one session of doing MDMA is like no exaggeration, 200 therapy sessions is equivalent to that. And to be able to drop in like that, you guys are parents, you know, this to be able to drop in like the, the most powerful thing about this drug is that when we land, when it hits us, There are no responsibilities. There are no children to worry about. There are no anxieties, all the, all the insecurities that I may have built up or walls around me because I have to be this like person who has it together that all goes away. And we're just two people who love each other. Yeah. And that's where we get to start the conversation. So it's profound, it's powerful and it's our medicine for now. I don't know that it's always going to be, but that's, it's what served us for the last six years, probably. My goodness. Uh, I'm so jealous of you. I tried MDMA once and I fainted the next day (laughs) and I I just hit my head on the ground and woke up like uh, barely conscious and someone actually slipped into my drink unbeknownst to me. Well, there you go. So (laughs) the biggest, the biggest thing with any of these things is intentionality is the intention behind it. So when we go into it, it's like a ceremony, like for sure. It's like a ceremony. Mm -hmm. We set intentions. We share them with each other. I like days before it, I'll cleanse my body. I'll get like IVs and B12 shots. Like it's a, it's a ceremonial process where like, it's an honoring of my body, of his, of our like joint space and of his experience. And then we get to have it together. And we sometimes do it with a group of friends. We sometimes do it just the two of us, but it's always something where we are, we don't regret doing it ever. And I think that part of being slipped something like you were, that takes the intention completely out. You have nothing, you have no control over it. And you have no, you know, just without the intention that it loses its magical value. Cause then you're just, you wake up unconscious. Yeah. Like it's just like yeah. completely. Don't get me wrong. I still had a great time <laughs> during it. It was just waking up. It was like all my serotonin was taken from my body and I had no, I used all my happiness for like two months in that one night. And then I was just yeah. down. So and that's true. Yeah. And if you go into it knowing on May 1st, I'm doing this thing and we're having the ceremony, then you get to prep your body for weeks ahead of time. So you start taking certain, you know, 5-HTP ahead. Like there's all these things you can do just like anything. If you know you're going to have this thing and how it affects your body so strongly, because that happens to everyone, you then prep your body going into it. And then you, you help your body afterwards with really nurturing foods and grounding foods and 5-HTP and B12 and all these things that help boost your you know, you get more rest, you schedule, you know, you take wor- off work for three days afterwards, like all the things to cushion you instead of like back to business as usual. Mm-hmm. Right. Man, I have a million questions for you. Like just <laughs> you talk like this is one of the most interesting things I've ever heard this what you just said now. Okay. So when someone cheats on you, it's a weird question, but is it easier to forgive them when you know they're in the throes of a drug addiction? He wasn't in the throes of a drug addiction then. Oh. So when he, when a D and I met, he was already quote sober, like mm-hmm. he had already gone to jail. He, he was several years without touching a substance. Um, I think he was just dabbling with like having a drink in moderate use, like very safely. His family knew like it was just super kosher. When we went through the period of time when he cheated on me over a few months and he was lying to me, 
that was like a replacement for the drugs. Like in, in our minds, it was like, he still had that stuff. He hadn't worked out. He still hadn't gotten to the root of the reason he initially did the drugs in the first place, what he was trying to escape. So when we got together and it was just so intense and I came in with all my baggage and he came in with his, it was like too intense. And instead of facing it together, cause we didn't have the tools, he went to another woman and went to these other modalities. And it's like the same exact behaviors that he did in drug use. So like seeking, hiding, all of those things, those actions still were taking place. It was just a different drug, mm. quote unquote, like, but it was sex instead of drugs. Does that make sense? Like it was yeah. just replaced. So he wasn't using drugs. It wasn't about that. It was that he was escaping his problems. He was looking for attention. He was looking for validation, obviously in the wrong place, but it was giving him that initial hit. Mm -hmm. Right. So then when he came to me and told me, he was like, I think that there's something deeper. I didn't just mm -hmm. cheat on you. I, there's this thing called SAA. It's like the AA modality for alcohol, but it's sex addiction. And he walked me through it. And I was like, whatever, go deal with it. Like we were engaged at the time and he was luckily really honest about the whole thing. But I was just like, I don't know if this is going to go through because you're a piece of shit. <laughs> and then I learned over time that it, it was a real thing and that it's not about this. He didn't even have sex with anybody else. Like it was not about that. It was about the hits of validation. It was about the hiding. Mm -hmm. It was about having the secret life. And that's what he was addicted to. Mm -hmm. So we got into therapy. He started going to meetings and we like kind of blindly just tried to face all of that. And that is why I've started talking so openly in the last six years about staying together after the cheating, because yeah. when I, when that happened to me, there was not a single article saying your partner cheated on you. Here's reasons that you could stay or why you would want to stay and that there is hope. Mm -hmm. There was no hope to me. It was like, I need to hide this. This is embarrassing. Yeah. This is like, if I stay with him, I'm a piece of shit too. Mm -hmm. You know, he's going to do this again. Cause once a cheater, always a cheater again, in air quotes, because it's just these, this shame. And again, putting someone in a box, like, Oh, if he cheats, he's going to definitely do it again. Like, no, he's an intelligent, incredible man who healed himself from drug addiction and got out of that. And now got a PhD from the top university in the world for psychology this man can figure this out too. Mm -hmm. And so together we figured it out in partnership. It wasn't something he could just do on his own. It's something that now was our problem. Mm -hmm. And so once I stepped into that role of like, oh, where's my responsibility in this? Because there's something about our interaction that's bringing this out in him. Just like me triggering him in little ways and pissing him off. It's the same thing. It's the same little triggers that we create together. That if he were with someone else, he may not have cheated on them, but I came in with all of my baggage and that's what created this beautiful, perfect storm. I definitely believe in the power of change and forgiveness and everything that you're talking about right now. But I feel like if someone had a degree in psychology, I might be like, oh, are they using this against me? Are they gaslighting me? And am I being fooled more than if they did not? Did that ever cross your mind? Like he's so intelligent that he is manipulating <laughs> me and using all of his knowledge to turn it against me. No, just because he's such a good human. Mm -hmm. He's just He's so genuine and he went into psychology, especially for his PhD, so he could help addicts like he was and, mm -hmm. and help them really get to the root cause and, and really truly make a difference in the world. So if it, yes, if, if I didn't know him at all, yes, for sure. But because it was such a genuine human, like he get, got down on his knees and was like, 
okay, you know, everything now he was crying and he's like, I will do whatever it takes. I will do whatever it takes. And I had him go into an outpatient rehab because that's all we could afford at the time. We were two college students. It was a sad, scary time, but he went into this outpatient rehab and it was basically just a ton of therapy and a bunch of really great things that he learned. But after he got out of that, we started really recognizing me, my place in all of it. And then our relationship needing a lot of support and help mm-hmm. on an on, in an ongoing way, not just like a week. Like we need, yeah. we needed maintenance. Like at least once a week, we had to see a therapist because if if we were going to stay together after all of that, mm-hmm. it, it meant we really needed to to do it right. So was that the like Ashley Madison thing that that article was talking about? Yeah. So yeah. how do you not bring that? Up in every I argument. Guess, yeah, but <laughs> how, how do you? How do I do? But like the jealousy and the toxicity there. How do you not let that infiltrate every aspect of your relationship? Because I think that not only would it impact my ego, and it would make me so fragile in that way, and I'd probably be looking in the mirror every day, being like, "Am I good enough? What's wrong with me that this man isn't getting enough from me?" And I just, I don't imagine any aspect of my life that it wouldn't infiltrate. So, how do you separate yourself from that? It did. Yeah, I was completely broken. I was completely broken. Like I said, I grew up in a small town. I didn't even compare myself to anyone. I didn't think I was skinny, fat. Like I knew I was good looking. I knew I was like perfect just the way that I was. It flipped my world upside down. If you told me the sky was pink, I would have been like, cool. I'm not surprised because it, it, I was completely flipped upside down and rocked. It rocked my world. So everything from my insecurities to jealousy to like, he wasn't, I mean, we had to make the most intense boundaries so that we could feel safe Mm -hmm. so that I could even go somewhere away from him and feel like he wasn't going to do something it was insane. So we had to work with a therapist to create boundaries that made us feel safe. So for several months, I want to say maybe even a year or two, he wasn't allowed to speak to his female friends. He wasn't allowed to text message. He's still to this day, this has been like 10, 11, 12 years. He still will not text a woman just directly. He'll, he'll three-way text us because that's just the thing we do. And it's just, we're in this place now that we're in this radical transparency, but it took a while to get there. And he, he always had friends that were women. He was raised by his mom and his sister, you know, his sister, he was in the psych department. It's like 90% women. He always had female friendships and relationships. A lot of them were sketchy and a lot of them were like part of his drug world and they were strippers and they were, so I was, we were just like, all of them are gone. Yeah. We're starting at square one and we did. And it was a slow road. I mean, There were days when I would like be upset for hours because he would look at an American apparel ad on a billboard. And I'm like, what are you looking at? You know, like I was, we'd get into a fight because the waitress looked at him sideways. Like it it was insanity, like Mm -hmm. beyond insanity. We were in shambles. And there were nights when I would just obsessively like stalk these women and like, just try and like, like cut myself, you know, like it was just like, I was in it. And I had, again, you have to go to those dark, 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 low moments so that you can then rise. But I I had to go in deep and I had to fully understand. And for me, it was like, I needed to like feel in my bones what he was going through so that I could 
find some sort of compassion because without that, without just being like, okay, you go handle it. I would have forever been jealous. I would have forever not understood. I would have forever judged him and been really mean spirited about it, which I was for a long time. And for a while, unless we were doing an MDMA ceremony, I was definitely like, didn't trust him fully. It took a long road. And I remember sitting in therapy and I'd be like, okay, I trust you now. You're out of the doghouse. And my therapist would be like, I don't think he is. Mm -hmm. I don't think you are. I think you're just saying that. Like I was trying to will it. Yeah. But there's certain, like, sometimes it just takes time. I can do all the work in the world. He can do all the work in the world. We can do all the ceremonies and all the things at the end of the day, sometimes you just need time to heal. And that was the part that I tried to like force that I couldn't. Okay, Sophie, we're just going to take a quick break to let our listeners know who we are supported by. Seedlip, the world's first distilled non-alcoholic spirit. Crafted without alcohol, sugar, or calories, Seedlip Spirit solves the dilemma of what to drink when you're not drinking, whether it's for the night, the month, or forever. And every time we do a podcast and anytime we want to unwind without the consequence that sometimes can be associated with alcohol, which I'm talking about a hangover, <laughs> we reach for our Seedlip and we never regret it. Yeah, and as a non-drinker, it never feels good when your only options are water, sodas, or sugary mocktails. But now you can skip the booze without feeling left out when it comes to your social life. And whether you prefer punchy citrus flavors, aromatic spices, or savory herbs, Seedlip offers a drink for every type of drinker. It's crafted using a bespoke process, including traditional copper distillation of botanicals, and each of Seedlip's three variants, so Spice 94, Garden 108, and Grove 42, which we had tonight, are alcohol-free and have their own unique flavors, which pair so perfectly with a splash of tonic. The majority of the drinks that I make come from the Seedlip cocktail book, which you can check out, or you can check out some cocktail inspiration on their Instagram account, at seedlip underscore na so head on over to seedlipdrinks.com or .ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree10 for 10% off your favorite non-alcoholic spirit this is available in canada and in the u.s and again that is seedlipdrinks.com or .ca and thisfamilytree10 but we are also supported by my breast friend my breast friend is the number one choice of nursing pillow for millions of parents around the world who nurse their babies and that is b-r-e-s-t where's the a Ain't no way in this breast. But for more than 25 years, My Breast Friend's patented wraparound design has supported people in over 40 countries and thousands of birthing hospitals to support successful nursing. Even Shane used it for a time. Even me. Even you. What do you mean? Well, you don't think you... I can handle a breast pillow? No, I mean, you used it and it helped you successfully nurse Lucy out of oh, a bottle. I was using My Breast Friend when you were in the womb. <laughs> I am six years older than you, by the way. <laughs> Lactation consultants around the world credit the pillow for helping parents achieve longer and more comfortable feeding cycles than they thought possible. It's simply the best, most supportive choice for successful breastfeeding. You can purchase My Breast Friend online at buybuybaby.com, target.com, walmart.com, babylist.com, and amazon.com. But now let's get back to our interview with Sophie. Speaking of radical transparency, you're doing these MDMA ceremonies. Now, when I was growing up, alcohol, and I'm sure it still is, was normal for parents to drink alcohol. And my parents were open with me that they were drinking alcohol. Mostly my mom. My dad didn't really drink, actually. For you, you have a 10-year-old. If he comes to you and asks about drugs, are you like, hey, mom and dad do it, but I don't recommend it? Or do you recommend it at a certain age? How do you handle the drug conversation? We're just like sex, just like anything. We will 100% sit down with them and talk to them about all of this. Mm -hmm. Our boys are super pure. They go to a Waldorf school. They don't, they're not exposed to anything. Like they're, our 10-year-old is like, America's three-year-old, like in terms of, he's so smart, he's so wise, but just in terms of purity, mm -hmm. um, like 
he's not flirting with girl, you know, like none of that. It's just, he's just a, a very sweet, sweet old soul. So when he's developmentally mature enough, we will 100% sit him down and talk about all of this. Weed has come up. So marijuana has come up. It's legal in California. Mm-hmm. And my mom has smoked my birth mom for as long as I can remember. It was a really shameful thing for me because she hit it and I could smell it. And I didn't, it, it just was very triggering for me because of the secrets, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I want to just preface this. I would hope that everyone's assuming this anyway, but we have never used any of these types of drugs, especially the illegal ones in the home yeah. and never when the kids are around. It's we go, we do a staycation in a hotel or we go rent a house and we're with friends and our kids are happily with our family or friends like babysitters. They are never around for this kind of stuff. And I would never want that, especially because of the feeling I felt as a kid with my mom hiding marijuana mm-hmm. use and and it was illegal then but regardless it was just a secret she had that I knew about and I would ask her and she would kind of like go around beat around the bush and it didn't feel good and so I always felt like this anger towards her and hate towards her because of that so flash forward to now I feel we talk about marijuana that it, there are some plants that people smoke mommy sometimes likes to smoke it or take it in like an edible these are not good for kids just like alcohol um, they give you different feelings. So I have, I have mm-hmm. talked about that because organically it's come up and they see us drinking sometimes with friends and they see us, you know, being extra giggly. And so, you know, we'll, I'll explain that, but I don't smoke in the house. I don't smoke outside the house because I don't want them to have that association of the smell. And it's usually like once they're all in bed safely, that we'll have a little bit, just like you would have a drink, like mm-hmm. same idea with smoking weed, but never illegal drugs in the house or anything. But yeah, we've, we've had that conversation about alcohol and weed with the kids and, I think other recreational drugs like mushrooms and MDMA, I'm sure that will come up at some point. But again, I think for these kids, given the way that they're growing up, it'll be a while. It'll probably be like 15, 16 right, until okay. we actually do. And I think we'll, we'll cross that bridge when it yeah. feels like it's time, right? Like we don't have to have a sex talk with my fourth grader right now because he's not even, he's, sure. just, he's not there yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like if, if he like stumbled across a porn on TV, like that would be a time to have a talk. So he doesn't learn from the TV, right? We want to have these open conversations. We keep almost having them. And then we're like, he's just not there yet. He's not interested in that yet. So I think all of it, you know, the way that I parent is very intuitive. And I think that this, this will be the exact same. It's when it feels like it's the right time, we will 100% have these conversations. Now, being as open and honest as you are opens yourself up to a lot of online hate. Do you just have the toughest skin in the world or how do you handle it all? Because I mean, you were a vegan, then you switched out of veganism, which that's going to make like a whole cavalcade of people come after you. And then you're this health person, but you also openly do MDMA, which is going to, you're going to be called a hypocrite and all these things. How do you handle it? Well, first of all, I'm not a hypocrite because I'm radically transparent about everything. There's yes. nothing that anyone can dig up and find that I didn't put out there myself. Yeah, but they're going to call you that, you know, they're going to want to find sure. ways. Mm-hmm. 100%. And it's, it's funny. I like got chills when you said the vegan thing because I got so much hate. Mm-hmm. I was attacked by the vegan community. And this was like before social media was even huge. This was This was 10 years ago, 8 to 10 years ago when I finally started to be like, I'm feeding my kids eggs, you know, like, and yeah, I would have like, I would have crippling tears, like on the floor in the fetal position, fighting online with people. My husband's like, get off the phone. That's a stranger. What are you doing? And I, again, I had to feel it. I had to go through it. And now that I know, like, 
there are just haters and there are just people out there that are trolls and are out there behind their screens with this, you know, they have this security about being behind their screen that they can say whatever they're feeling and take their anger out on you or their frustrations or their jealousies or their own stuff. It's not my stuff. It's theirs. So for me, I definitely, I'm also politically very active and I use my voice as a social activist as much as I can. And that also comes back to bite me because I am outspoken, but I just know that, you know, I can give it a minute and I can kind of feel if the person's really there to have a conversation. I am here for a conversation. Mm -hmm. I am here to be, to learn something new, to make mistakes, but I'm not going to be abused. And I'm, I refuse to open up my like intimate world to someone who's going to then come in and, and be abusive. So mm-hmm. I block people very happily. I will block someone if they cross a line. And you know, if it's, it's a privilege for people to come into my world and for us to share so intimately, it's not easy to share that intimately. There are many podcasts that a DNI have done or articles I've written where I had such extreme anxiety afterwards after releasing it. But then the floods of goodness come through of like lives we've changed and marriages we've helped without even having a conversation with them in person. They've just listened to our podcast or mm-hmm. watched something that we've, that's all we care about. We're just mm-hmm. here to share, to help change the world. So people can just look at something differently. And if it appeals to you, great. I'm not here to be everyone's best friend. I'm not here to like, not everyone's going to relate to what a D is saying. If, if you love AA and it's working for you and you're listening right now, you stay in AA, you do what works for you. If you don't do any recreational drugs and it makes you turned off to hear this stuff I'm speaking about, great. This conversation's not for you. There are bits and pieces of me that maybe you'll like, and there are bits and pieces that you may not. I'm not meant to have everyone love me. And same goes for if you're listening. So I think learning that over time and realizing that I'm doing all of this, I'm sharing openly so that it can affect that one person Mm -hmm. whose marriage it may save or who's like, healing journey it may affect where like they've done all the therapy in the world and they just can't get over this thing that happened to them when they were raped at 13 or whatever like I know I know what that feels like and I also know that putting things in bad and good is not going to help anything it's being open-minded and curious about the world at large and not putting things into boxes and just remembering there is medicine in everything Mm -hmm. for someone and that exact thing this water could be poison for someone else. Mm-hmm. If you drink too much water, you will die. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I really love your transparency and obviously how resolute you are in your decisions and how at peace you are with yourself and the choices that you made. And you mentioned like if we can save somebody's marriage and I realized I never got that that final I guess a question that I had for you in regards to that whole thing. And whether you do feel at peace now in your marriage and, you know, what you could tell other people, because you mentioned that you couldn't find a damn article about staying together after cheating. And that's why you speak out about it. So if there are people listening who are in that position or who might may find themselves in that position eventually, what perspective can you offer them as to the benefit of remaining together? I mean, my relationship is something that I couldn't have dreamt of. Like the relationship my partner and I have is the deepest, most profound, most fun, most like supportive relationship I could ever dream of. Like I, if you would have told me this even five years ago, I would have been like, there's not a chance. And 
it's hard to imagine. Like I talk to some women and even husbands who are in it because one of them cheated. And it's, it's so hard to imagine that it, there can be even a glimmer of truth in this, but I swear I am grateful for the experiences that we had, all of them, all of the darkness, all of the hardness, all of the like insecurities and, and just gross, like suffering we had to go through because without it, we would not be where we are now. And we learned so much about each other, about our intimacy, about like, there are things that I probably would have never looked at if these things didn't, you know, abruptly hit me Mm -hmm. in the face. And I want, I'm here to grow and expand. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm here to grow. I am here to change. I am here to evolve. And I have a partner who wants to do that with me. And he's deeply flawed and deeply human as I am. But together we can look at all of it. And when one of us is feeling off, the other one can bring the other one back again. Like, it's so crazy. I don't know if you guys have this, but like when I'm in a dark place and like feeling a little blue, he's in a great place. Like, It's not a coincidence, right? It's like perfectly balanced when he's feeling a little down and sickly or whatever, like I'm really strong and I'm, I bring him up and I keep the family together and it's it's that same dynamic. And I truly believe uh, Marianne Williamson says that you are placed with the relationships in your life, especially the ones closest to you for the ultimate learning experience, for the ultimate mirror for learning, for growth. And I, that's what I believe is you're put with a certain person for that reason. Now, if your partner's not willing to work, if something happens between you two and one of you decides that you you're done, you're out of love, or you just don't have the fight in you. You're like, I just don't want to do all that therapy and all that work. And that self-discovery, I don't really feel like doing that. Then it's not going to work. But if both people are ready to like fight and do this together and give it all you have as an individual and together, then anything can happen. And what's on the other side is, is whatever you want it to be. What is your perfect relationship? That's what you can have. And everyone's is unique. It's your own blueprint, right? Yeah. You too. And you get to co-create this beautiful life together and you get to change your mind at any point. In business, is the feeling the same? Like, do you work together just as well? So we don't really, we only do this one podcast once a week together. We don't work really with anything else that it wasn't easy at first. It Mm -hmm. definitely was not easy coming together. I also was like hesitant to want to do the the podcast because I have so much going on and he kept pushing. So it was that dynamic of like feeling dragged, but I also got over that very quickly when I realized the profound impact we were having on people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was like us. Yeah. 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 Was that your dynamic as well? Yes, exact same. She didn't want to do it at all. It was so hard for me. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard. I think it's as a mother too. We just hold like so much weight of, of just all, there's just, there's nothing like being a mother. There's Mm -hmm. just the amount of stuff we hold onto. And then we're trying to like micromanage, even not, not intentionally. It's just like, we don't want to micromanage, but we can't help it because we just know their every breath and rhythm. And we, held them in our bodies. And so it's, it's like, I just was in it. I was in the thick of it. I was pregnant with Noah for some of it, literally in the fetal position recording and like hating him, (laughs) hating him. I'm just like, you're such a dick. (laughs) I'm like, hi, I'm so, you know, like, that's like, I think we were talking the skinny confidential three days postpartum and I was breastfeeding my baby and Lauren Everett says like, are you like, this is your life right now. And Yeah. yeah, yeah, there was no going back. It's, it's nice. It's cathartic for us. It is. It is. And, and why not? Like, that's another thing about relationships is you've got to grow together. Mm-hmm. 
got to grow together because you're two whole individuals that come together. And if you're not growing at the same pace or a similar pace, it, it can affect you in that way too. It doesn't have to be cheating that makes you fall apart. It's a thing, right? Mm-hmm. We were growing apart for whatever reason. He had his stuff, I had my stuff, and he cheated on me. Yeah. It's not about the cheating. It's that we were growing apart. And the same thing can happen postpartum, like emotionally, like psychologically what happens to the woman when you're in postpartum, all of that. It's like, there are so many things in a relationship that can happen. And it's not about the thing. It's how you two handle it together and, mm-hmm. and growing together and learning together and being supportive for each other in the good days, the bad days, the hard days. It's all of it. Now, this is a question I had before we got into all of this, and it's so inconsequential now after <laughs> listening to this, but I'll, I'll try to tie it in somehow. I wanted to ask about coffee. Now, I yeah. seem to be addicted to coffee, and I was wondering through all your healing journey that you've been through, are you impervious to addictions? And what's your relationship with coffee? So personally, I don't think I've ever had um, an issue being addicted with anything. I've had a pretty moderate approach to everything, but again, you never really know like what caused what, is it the Mm -hmm. fact that I'm so open? Is it the fact that I'm healthy? Is it, you don't really know which thing came first. But like the raw foods, for example, might've been considered an obsession or an addiction or, yeah. 100%, yeah. I think food was probably the one time that I was in like a super unhealthy relationship with a substance. Yeah. Maybe not an addiction necessarily, but an obsession for sure. Mm -hmm. I think with coffee, personally, all the, the education I've had about it, all of the research I've done on myself and obviously like in the world, coffee is, it's a really great, it can be someone's medicine and it can be someone's poison, right? And so for me, I, I can't do black coffee. It's just too intense of a drug for me, mm-hmm. okay. right? Like if I give you three MDMAs, you're going to pass out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Want a coffee? No. Give me that MDMA, please. <laughs> yeah. But if you have a really small intentional amount of MDMA, yeah. you're going to have the best night of your fucking life. Well, I want to do it now. <laughs> I'm I sold. I, I, quote me on that. Yeah. <laughs> you will have the best night of your fucking life. But it's intentional. It's not going overboard. And so mm-hmm. the people in this system, you know, I think especially in America, we, and Canada, I'm sure, we just are go, 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 go. We drink, we drink coffee, we drink black coffee, we keep going, have another cup of coffee. So again, with intention, having, I have a superfood coffee every day. I have a superfood company called Philosophy. And in my coffee, we brew coffee. It's like a 15 minute process. It's intentional. It's slow. We do a pour over or we, you know, and then we, blend it in the blender with superfoods like raw cacao and reishi medicinal mushrooms we add um some sort of a dairy-free creamer we do collagen if we feel like it like we amp it up with good healthy fats and then the protein from my cacao magic powder and that now this blended drink is what you're drinking and so the good fats and the protein help slow down the caffeine so it's not this high intensity drug experience it's more of like a level intake and outtake. So I don't feel a crash after superfood coffee. Like I had one four and a half hours ago. There was never a crash. It's just sustained Mm -hmm. energy, but it's about like mixing different things together, you know, and making sure that if you are sensitive to coffee or if you need a lot of like several cups, that's something just to look at. And none of it is without judgment. It's just like, hmm, like I know when I am feeling really anxious, I need to chill out and not have caffeine because Mm -hmm. it's not going to support where I'm at. 
But on a daily basis, the the pros outweigh the cons for me. Having a superfood coffee, having coffee, it keeps you regular. It gives you energy. It's an antioxidant. I like the ritual. It makes me feel good. So for all of those things, it far outweighs like potentially being addicted and needing it and like the the thought that maybe it's bad. I mean, it's it's also what you're thinking as you have it, right? And like if you need one at 12 and then you also need one at three, that's just something to investigate and look at. And mm-hmm. maybe you just start swapping, you know, like I don't want to drink alcohol every single night, not because I think I have a problem, but because I don't want to do anything every night. Yeah. I don't want, I don't want to be dependent on anything. Mm-hmm. Right. And so with coffee, it's the same thing. It's like, if it's integrated in like a ritualistic, beautiful way, and you're not like, Ooh, chasing <laughs> that thing, then it's all good. Like what there's, you know, how many cups do you think you have? I, I tell myself two, but it's probably closer to three and a half. And like, what's something that you could see yourself swapping out like in the afternoon? Like, do you love like raw chocolate? Well, as a joke, I was going to say MDMA now because you've really got me on it. But <laughs> That's not going to give you the effect you want at 3 p.m. <laughs> a scoop of Nutella. Sometimes that's what I'll do. And instead, I'll be like, oh, this will give me a little energy. And I'll just mm-hmm. go Mmm, and I'll take one one little spoonful. I'm going to send you my cacao magic coconut butter. It's oh, cacao. So have you ever tried cocoa butter? Yes, but not intentionally. Just she's probably giving yeah. Me, yeah. 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 So it's the meat of the coconut and the oil of the coconut mix. It's not a consistency like peanut butter. It's like it's its own kind of harder because it's solid at room temperature, but it's delicious and decadent. And then we mix our cacao magic powder with it and a little bit of raw honey. It is. Yeah, that sounds, sounds incredible. That sounds yeah. so incredible. And it doesn't have like the sugar of Nutella, but mm. it's got that satisfying, thick, like delicious. So like th- that little swap, having that every day at 3 p.m. as your treat, first of all, it's the best thing you can put in your body and for your brain and focus. There's definitely no crash. And it's that same kind of thing. So finding those healthy swaps, like mm. I'll do matcha when I'm feeling just like a little anxious or if I want a little bit more caffeine, but it's 2, 3 p.m. and I know what it's going to do to me later, right? Mm. Yeah, that sounds great. Sophie, I have to say, this has been like we could sit here for hours yeah. with you because there You're are like the so most interesting guests we've ever had. I know. <laughs> and honestly, your experiences, your husband's experiences, it has just made for such a fascinating conversation. And this time flew by. But I truly want to thank you for sitting down with us today. Like, this has been such a pleasure. And if our listeners want to go check you out, check out your businesses, where can they find everything? So, thank you. <laughs> My philosophy company is The Philosophy, spelled with my name, so philosophy.com. And then it's philosophy love on Instagram. My Instagram is sophie.jaffe. And yeah, that's pretty much where you can find me, any of those places. Hell yeah. Well, seriously, thank you so much for today. That was that was the best. Yeah. I'm like, if we didn't pleasure. have a screaming toddler, I'd probably take half an hour more of your time. But yes. I, would, I mean, I would if, if we didn't have all the things, right? Between <laughs> us, how many kids do you have? Two. Two. Two, yeah, we have three. So it's oh, like okay. five kids between us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. But so nice meeting you, eh? Enjoy your weekend. You too. All right. Take bye, care. Sophie. Bye. And there you have it. That was Sophie. I am so glad that I asked her that question. Me too. Her perspective on that whole thing is so different than my own and so different than what I think I'd be capable of. And it's inspiring in a way, even though, you know, like I'm not into the drug thing. It is so interesting to see. I think when it comes to relationships, 
a perspective that you don't hear about. And I'm so happy that she talks about that. Yeah, but you were relating to her too. It's not like she just always had this perspective. She went on a journey mm -hmm. to get there. Because I think she was very relating to everything you said yeah. and all your feelings that you would go through. Like case in point, we were just watching the movie Sideways. And that <laughs> movie, I had forgotten the entire film. All I knew was it was a very respected and beloved film. But it deals with infidelity. Like 90% of the movies about a, a cheater and, you know, relationships that go south and you hated it it yeah I, I do like sideways but i would love <laughs> you it you <laughs> do not like sideways here's the thing i love aspects of sideways i've seen it like five times you're like i like the wine parts i like the wine parts the, there's like 15 <laughs> minutes of wine parts everything else is about infidelity yeah yeah i don't know there's something about the topic makes me queasy. nervous it makes me queasy i don't like it however i loved talking to sophie about it because again it's just it's an outlook that you don't ever hear about. Okay, but now we're gonna get to our next interview with Leah Williams. But before we get to this interview, uh, Alex, tell everyone who we are supported by. We are supported by Hello Bello. Being a parent is hard, like really hard. So when you go to get diapers to prevent the next eventual blowout, finding a diaper that's absorbent and soft without spending a fortune shouldn't be just as tough. You can choose from over 20 different fun rotating designs around the year. And each bundle comes with seven packs of these adorable diapers, four packs of plant-based wipes, and even one full-size product freebie with your first order. Plus, you can get 15% off any add-ons like the bubble bath, the wipes, the diaper rash cream, which is incredible, and the hair detangler, which I personally use myself. Let's face it, Dax, Shepard, and Kristen Bell are not going to lead you astray. Like, I mean, they could uh, align with any brand they wanted, right? Of course. They're not going to pick a bad one. They ain't going to pick a bad one. And their entire principle is built on the simple idea that all babies deserve the best, which is why they offer premium baby products at affordable prices. So to get Hello Bello super soft, super absorbent, and super affordable diapers delivered right to your door, go to hellobello.ca and use the promo code thisfamilytree30 for 30% off your diaper bundle order. That's a huge bang for your buck and a lot of potential blowout saved. You can say that again, but I will. That's hellobello.ca, promo code thisfamilytree30. 30 to start bundling with 30% off your first order. Don't forget that's hellobello.ca promo code thisfamilytree30. This promo is applicable to Canadians only. But now let's get to our interview with Leah Williams. Well, Leah, thank you so much for joining us here today. I know you are the dearest days. You have quite a following and, you know, one of those interesting jobs that could really only happen in this day. So when people ask you what you do, what do you tell them? Oh, it's a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest, because I think I'm still coming to terms with it a little bit myself. And I think influencer has such a, has certain, certain connotations sometimes, I think, that aren't so great. So I often will say I work in marketing and I have a marketing background. So I'm like, well, that works. And then if people kind of probe me further than I say I'm a content creator. So I say I make content for a living. I make content for brands and mm -hmm. I share my experiences across social media. That's mm -hmm. my blurb. <laughs> How, how'd you get into it? I just honestly really fell into it. So mm -hmm. when I had my first child, my daughter, so we um, struggled to conceive and ended up going through IVF to have to get pregnant that first time. And so I started just sharing my experience with infertility and with IVF uh, across Instagram. And it 
it just picked up. And I think that was, she's five now. So that was six years ago. And it was much easier then, I guess, to, on platforms like Instagram to grow quite organically and quite mm-hmm. quickly. So that's just really, I guess, people just resonated with that that journey and that experience and that it, my following just began to grow from there. Yeah. And so you've got two kids currently. You're pregnant with a third. How far along are you? I am 24 weeks. <laughs> so exciting. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And, you know, I always, before I had kids, I would look at women with, you know, one kid. But then if I saw women with several kids, I'd be like, wow, they were cut out for this. This was what they were meant to be. They they, they must have, you know, fallen into this so naturally. And I was curious about your experience with becoming a mother, you know, not necessarily the IVF, but more of that emotional and mental side of it. Did you always want to be a mom? And how was that transition for you? Yeah, I did. I like, I did always want to be a mom. And I guess that's why when I found out, because I have endometriosis. And so I found out quite when I was maybe 21, I think that it would be quite difficult for me. It could be quite difficult for me to conceive. So then going through that journey and then I had my daughter and how do I say this nicely? She was a very difficult baby. (laughs) Like I was the one at our mother's group who would be standing there like just rocking the pram constantly, jiggling, (laughs) and everyone else would be sitting on the grass in the sun. Their baby would just be asleep in the pram quietly. I was always that one with the screaming baby. And so I, yeah, I really... I really found that transition into motherhood difficult and then I kind of had my own mental battles with that because I'd wanted to be a mum for so long and it was something mm. I, you know, we'd worked so hard to get to that place and then I had this child and I just, it wasn't, I guess, what I expected it to be. And it wasn't until I kind of had my my second that I, he was a much more chilled out baby and I think too, you're a much more chilled out mum by mm-hmm. the time you have another one as well because it's not all brand new and everything, you know, you've done it before and you kind of I think you get better at going with the flow and you know, like, oh, my baby's crying for two minutes. That's okay and I'll get to them and it's okay. They can cry for two minutes and it's it's okay. My experience with my second was really different and I think that's when I kind of, I felt like I came into my own as as a mom and I felt much more confident in my choices and um, my decisions that I made for my kids. Yeah. And, you know, you said that, you know, in some ways, you know, it wasn't what you expected and then you kind of work through that. And I was curious the most glaring way that it wasn't what you expected. Cause for me, I struggled a long time with, you know, I did so much prep for the birth and for the labor and delivery. And I was like, Oh my God, that's the scariest part in my mind. But then really that was easy. It was over in a couple hours. And then I was met with the postpartum period, which I thought was going to be like totally blissful angel singing, you know, everything happy. (laughs) And that was really difficult for me. So that's what I didn't expect. But what did you not expect the most? I don't know. I mean, I I have an older sister and so she'd obviously gone through it and I'd seen her go through it before me. And, you know, I don't think any baby really is smooth sailing. Every single baby is difficult in one way or another, whether it's, you know, um, breastfeeding is hard or they don't sleep very well 
or maybe they do that really well and then they don't take to solids very well. There's always something that's kind of hard. But I just, I don't think I thought it would be that hard. And I think I'm someone who, I don't know how I say this modestly, but like I, I always <laughs> strive to do quite well with everything I do. And I I thought I was really failing and it was kind of the first time in my life that I really thought I'm really failing at this and nothing I do is working and I just couldn't, I could not get this baby to sleep and I could not get her. I could, I felt like I couldn't make her happy. I felt like I wasn't enough, I guess. And I didn't expect that. I didn't expect to have this baby and not feel connected and not to bond with her in the way that I thought that I would. I feel that I feel like an element of failing, I'd say once a week. And it's always a struggle to get myself over that. But how did you in those moments, you know, it's your first child postpartum, you're feeling that for the first time in your life. How did you get over that and start to find confidence in yourself? I, th- I think it was uh, when she turned about, because I took her, my daughter, I took her to pediatricians and to doctors. And so I was like, why would this baby stop crying? Like, what is wrong with her? <laughs> I, like, I have this vivid memory even of staying at my parents' house because they live three hours away. And my husband, when my baby was five weeks old, had to go on this work trip to Hamilton Island and I don't know if you know Hamilton Island but it's like this beautiful you know tropical paradise island he had to go on a work trip there for oh, a week wow, lucky him yeah. Um, yeah 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 <laughs> and I was like oh well I'm staying going to go go stay up with my mom and dad and I was there and even my mom was like this baby will just not stop crying like <laughs> I what is like and it was kind of then that I was like okay maybe this isn't just me but she just she just would not stop, and it wasn't until so I took her to pediatricians and doctors, and they they were like, you know, there's nothing, and I was like, please be something wrong with her, and you can just get us give us some medication, and it's you know, but they're like, there's nothing wrong with her. She's just a textbook difficult baby, and that's just, yeah. and I was like, oh great, thanks for that. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't really till she was about 14 months, you know, honesty that she kind of settled down. I also actually went to my GP probably around the same time, actually, maybe at about when she was about a one and a half and talked to my GP because I knew I wasn't doing very well mm-hmm. mentally. And so I went and talked to my GP and I went on um, antidepressants and, and, and anxiety medication and that helped as well. So and I think I should have done that a lot earlier than what I did do that. Um, and talking to a psychologist also really, really helped as well. Mm-hmm. And like in in Canada anyway, I think people are finally becoming more open about that, about postpartum depression, about needing, you know, medication, needing therapy, needing to seek help. What is the vibe with that in Australia and within your support system? Yeah, I think I think it's increasingly improving. I think it's definitely improving. It's just one of those things that I guess it's there's not there's not enough there's not enough resources there's not enough support to kind of go around we do have a really great program here in Australia which is called the what's it called I can't remember the exact name but it's basically like a mental health plan and so you can go to your your doctor and say I want to see a psychologist and you can go on a mental health plan which will give you access to reduced rates to see a psychologist for a certain amount of time 
But it's all those things of like the wait lists are so long because it's not enough. They're hard to get into. And so I, I think it is getting better, but I think there's still that stigma around knowing the difference between struggling and what is, you know, just normal to, to having young kids and being a mum and trying to do everything and, you know, having postpartum depression or having depression or having anxiety and, and kind of the difference between those things. Mm-hmm. But I think that I think it is becoming better and I think the more people talk about it on social media and just those sort of platforms that it does really help increase awareness. Mm-hmm. For us, we have two children. We have a yeah. two and a half year old and a, a seven month old. And even though they're not perfect, I think if they were, we could never have the confidence to go for three children. How do you how do you get that confidence? We didn't. No. <laughs> uh, so our first two are IVF, and then mm-hmm. this one is a surprise. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So is this, now you've already had two pregnancies, but this one being a surprise, does this one have you more on edge than your other two? I don't know. It's quite interesting because it was literally like the biggest surprise of our lives. <laughs> we, you know, like we spent two years really actively trying to have a baby for our first baby and, you know, doing everything right, all the apps, all the, you know, the um, ovulation tests, like everything. And it just, it just would not work. And I think we had a, uh, had like a 7% chance of conceiving naturally. So it was pretty low. And so it was the biggest shock. If we haven't used contraception for seven years, so yeah. <laughs> um, oh it's really, yeah, the odds were low. So um, no, just shock. But I think in one way, I'm like, oh, my God, three kids. <laughs> Scary. Yeah. But in another way, I'm also a bit like it's already chaos, so it's just adding more chaos to the chaos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's kind of what I'm trying to go with. I think when you have your first and then you're pregnant with your second, you feel those feelings of like, how I love another baby as much as I love my first baby and how will I handle two kids? And then you have two and you just know that your heart just expands and you just, you love another child in the same way and you just get on with it. And so I guess being pregnant number three, I'm just kind of applying those. Yeah. I think I just feel like, Oh, it's already chaotic. So it's just going to be more of that. (laughs) And as a content creator, it's actually now you have more to talk about. Yeah, there we go. It's great content. So. <laughs> so what was your husband's reaction when you got pregnant so shockingly? Like, who, Yeah, how do you tell was, him? Yeah, and who was more surprised, you or him? Well, I, I, don't, I, I, I like to say it was him because he had no clue. So I didn't do a test until my period was 10 days late. Wow. Because I was just like, well, I'm not. I couldn't be, you know, and, and every day I would wake up expecting, oh, I'll get my period. And then I wouldn't. And I was like, oh, that's weird. But I couldn't be, I couldn't be. And then I finally told one of my girlfriends and she's like, um, babe, do you think you should do a pregnancy test? And I was like, <laughs> well, maybe, but I'm like, I can't be pregnant. So, you know, but I kind of also had this weird inkling that I was like, I had this weird kind of feeling, but in my brain, I was like, well, you're not. So don't even, you know, my logical mm-hmm. side of my brain was like, you're not. And so when I told him, um, I waited till the kids went to bed and we got the kids to bed and we we're sitting on the couch and I was really nervous to tell him just because I thought, 
he has no idea. He's like, he has no idea this is coming to him. <laughs> and yeah, he couldn't believe it. He was some some very loud swear words may have come out of his mouth. <laughs> yeah. But really excited. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. And that is such a wonderful story. You know, we've we've spoken to several women on this podcast who have been through IVF, uh, different fertility treatments. And we know how hard it can be. We were lucky to conceive quickly, so we don't know from experience, but just in conversation. And I kind of want to go to that part of your life. Uh, Our biggest endometriosis guest on this was Emma Watkins from The Wiggles. And we spoke with her about that in depth and about her story because Shane's stepmother, who is very close to us and to our girls, she has endometriosis and she had three laparoscopies in her life was not able to conceive and you know that's like she thinks of Shane as like her son. So when you're 21 years old, how do you know that something's wrong? Is it just like intense pain? What was that diagnostic process like? Yeah, it, it took a long a long long time so to get to get the proper diagnosis. I think like I'm nearly 35 now, so that was back quite a long time ago and I think in in Australia like, there wasn't a lot of um, awareness around endo like there is now there's I feel like there's a lot more awareness about about it is what the condition is and what the symptoms are and the effects it can have on your life but there wasn't there really wasn't that back then so I was having like extremely painful periods but also like throughout my cycle I would have a lot of pain and, and but when I have my periods I often would have to go to the emergency department the hospital and get on a morphine drip because um, I was passing out a lot from the pain. And so that was kind of like a cycle, you know, that would happen every month. I saw a few specialists and I had one surgery where they just took my appendix out randomly because I thought, oh, maybe it'll be bad and didn't look for endometriosis. It wasn't until I saw the fourth specialist that I eventually got um, diagnosed after I had a laparoscopy. So it, it took a few good years to get the official diagnosis of what was actually going on. But I feel like it's different now. I feel like there's a lot more awareness about it here in Australia now. Is that because of Emma Wiggle, you think? Oh, look, I think she's probably got something to do with it. Definitely. Yeah. She's got such a big present and there's a lot. I think there's more funding for it now and there's more kind of um, campaigning and charities and groups that are formed to educate and bring awareness mm. to what it actually is. So what what exactly happens when you get a laparoscopy? Like are they here's my understanding of it and I'm probably mm. so wrong. Do they like scrape off the some kind of lining? Yeah, so different surgeons do it differently. So my surgeon lasers it off. So they go in through your belly button and they oh. so they go in through your belly button. Yeah, I know, it's crazy. So it's called it's just keyhole surgery usually. So if it's quite bad, I think they have to go further but most of the time it can be done with keyhole surgery so they go make three incisions and they put like the camera in and then they look around everywhere and see where they can find it and then they put a laser and they laser the adhesion so where it's kind of formed on your organs or if it's pulled sometimes it can pull your organs together and they'll laser it off are you awake for that process no no you're under a general Okay. So you're good. completely out. Yeah. So you've got an anesthetist and everything. It's like a proper surgery. Yeah. So, you know, knowing that you had endometriosis and that conceiving would be difficult, what were your thoughts on having kids? Were you like, there's no way in hell I'm not going to be a mom? Or did you go into it knowing that 
you know, maybe it wouldn't work out. Yeah, I think I went in knowing that it could be hard. And I think being your first as well, it's it's always you do have those thoughts, and especially when you're starting IVF, you think to you don't know because you hear such mixed reviews of IVF that I think a lot of the time the stories you hear about IVF are the, the incredibly difficult stories. So the ones where you hear that people have been doing IVF for five years and they've only just got a baby. So you you often go into it with that mindset, I think, and thinking, okay, this is going to be a long, hard road. But I guess I always, we were 20, I was 28 when I started IVF. And so I always thought, okay, I've got my age, my age, I'm quite young. So that's a great. So I always, I tried to kind of stay positive around that and keeping upbeat as much as I could, that that was something that was on my side. Yeah. See, I, I couldn't imagine going through it and Again, it's something that so few people I know, especially the older women in my life who, you know, helped kind of shape me and raise me. I don't know any of their birth stories. I don't know anything about that process for any one of them. And only when my friends and I started having kids did we start maybe hearing stories from our moms or from our aunts and things like that. But going through something so difficult, because IVF is such a difficult process, physically, mentally, emotionally you know, did you have anybody around you to offer experience and support, like somebody that you already knew? Not not really. Like I didn't know anyone else that had gone through IVF and I was kind of the first out of my friendship group to start having kids and I do have friends in my friendship group now. I've got two friends actually in my friendship group now who have been through IVF, but I was the first one. So I didn't really have that person to talk to but I guess that's when I started really reaching out to online communities Mm -hmm. to get the support and just to listen to other people's stories about what their experience was like and have questions answered that you know you wanted answered by someone who's been through that. And when people ask you for advice or you know if you had one thing to say to me going through this incredibly taxing process like I don't know anybody else do you have something that you tell them? Yeah, I think I think IVF is a is is a long process. So one cycle of IVF is four weeks, so it's a long process, and there's many hurdles and steps you have to meet along the way. And so my top tip that I tell people who are are going through IVF is just to take each day. Don't look too far ahead. Take each day, each step, each hurdle at a time and don't worry about the next hurdle until you mm. jump that one. And is it covered at all in Australia? It is. So I think, I can't remember exact figures, but for your first cycle, I think it is, you get, I think, depending on what your condition is and the reason you're doing IVF, of course, I think you get about 30 to 40% back. And there are also, you can do it through a public funded system. So you can do it through a hospital where it is a lot more of it is publicly funded, not all of it, but maybe say 70% of it. I went through a private clinic because you're treated, it's, I don't know how to say this in the right way, but basically, you know, if you pay more often, you're given a better service and experience. And that is definitely when you do it through a public system, often they'll link everyone's cycles together and they'll do a whole heap of people in one round. And I just wanted to, I wanted everything tailored, especially for me. 
So mm-hmm. when you do it private, privately, you have to pay 100% of it. So you do, but then you can claim up to 30 oh. to 40% of it back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, your husband going through IVF two times, did you notice a different a difference in how he handled the process from the first time to the second time? Because you know, I, I barely know about IVF and I'm a woman and Shane, I know that you know, like, man, yeah. yeah, you're a man and yeah. you know almost <laughs> nothing about IVF, right? Before no. we started this podcast, I think we both knew so little. You knew less than my little. And being, you know, an, expect- an expectant father going through this, like, how did you see him change through the process? Yeah, I'm really lucky. Like, my partner is so supportive. He's so supportive. And we really kind of tackled it together. You know, I never felt like it was me, even though a lot of the time it is you going through all the injections and the procedures and everything. And the man just gets to do the part where they go into the nice room and do their thing in there. (laughs) But, um, But I never felt like it was all just me. I really felt like we really tackled it together as a team. And we were really lucky in that our first round of IVF, we got five embryos and one is my daughter and then we froze four embryos. So our second round of IVF wasn't a full cycle of IVF. It was what's called a frozen embryo transfer, FET is how you'd see it referred to in kind of like infertility forums and that community. So it was a frozen embryo transfer. So the, the cycle itself is is much less invasive doing a frozen transfer and that resulted in my son. So I, I think that going into that second time as well, you feel that kind of unknowing of whether you'll ever be a mother or you'll ever be a father is gone because, it, you know, you have one child and you know that, that that process worked and so you don't feel that as much. I don't think the second time is much easier mentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happens in your life is such a big part of your job, but when something's very taxing mm-hmm. or trying, does it ever, are you ever like, I don't want to do my job right now? Yeah, definitely. I think like, and I... I fell pregnant for the third time in, when was it? My goodness, September, I think. And I basically disappeared off, pretty much disappeared off social media for three months. So I've been really unwell in this pregnancy. So I've been, I'm 24 weeks and I'm still vomiting. So I'm on medication for it. Um, And the first 14 weeks for me were really, really difficult. So I was vomiting every day and I just couldn't show up. Like I was like, I had a few brand commitments that I had to do when I had to show up for those. I had brand commitments that I had to cancel because I was like, I just can't, I cannot be on this platform right now. Um, and, I, you know, I was getting messages from people saying like, hi, you're not on here very much anymore. Is everything okay? What's going on? And um, I just couldn't, yeah, it is that weird thing when your own life is intertwined so closely to your job and what you do. It's, it's really quite a strange thing, but I, I just had to, I just couldn't, I couldn't be online at that time. I see. I feel for you so much. I, I will never get pregnant again intentionally. I never want to, again, not only do we not want a third child, but pregnancy is so hard on me and uh, I was getting sick. It sounds like you have a very similar pregnancy to the one that I just had. And mm-hmm. for that reason alone, I, I just don't think I could physically do it again. And, you know, you have been through, Leah, so much, so much stuff, like so much trauma in regards to your health and the 
childbearing process. And I know you're, I know August Fox had an interesting and traumatic birth. And I was curious if you could tell us a bit, a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I, like I had a um, really beautiful birth with my daughter, Eva. So I did come, we did come birth and it's kind of known globally as hypnobirthing, I think. And yeah, so we did that and it was a really long labor. It was 20, about, I think it was 21 hours. So long, but it was beautiful. And I came out of that birth just feeling like I'm amazing. I like women are just incredible. I felt so empowered and I just expected to have that experience the second time. And it like, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that at all. So I got to 42 weeks with August. So I was 42 weeks. And so they induced me. That was fine because at 42 weeks I was ready. (laughs) I was done. I was so done. I was just like, I cannot carry this heavy load and I'm really short. And I just carry all out the front and had this huge belly. And I was like, my back is done. I am done with this. Let's get this baby out. But I think I still really had that faith in in midwives and I really trusted midwives unlike most other medical professionals who I don't trust and I'm so I'm so weary of because of my previous experiences so I went into being induced and I just I guess you know it's quite a long long story but I guess to to kind of sum it up quickly I had the experience where I was given a midwife who ignored me and did not support me throughout my entire labour and basically would tell me over again that I wasn't in labour when I knew I was in labour. She left us alone the entire labour. I was in this tiny little cubicle, so I wasn't allowed into the birthing suites. She wouldn't let me into the birthing suites because she didn't believe I was in labour. So I was kind of locked in this tiny little cubicle. And I I just want to just hold on, slow it down for one second for the listeners because this is – it, it is mind-blowing, honestly. So you knew you were in labor and you were yeah. not allowed into the maternity ward, essentially, to give birth. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. And why was the midwife yeah. deducing that you weren't? So because I wasn't meeting the criteria of active labor, basically. So the criteria from what she was, her belief was the criteria was that you either had to be, and this is what she kept repeating to me over and over again, was that you either need to be five centimeters lead, five centimeters dilated, or your waters have broken. And I kept saying to her, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. My waters didn't break with my daughter until I was pushing her out. So I don't understand. Like, what is this criteria? It makes no sense. My contractions were three minutes apart, even, you know, this went on for hours. And I was just begging her and I, before I, because I've kind of suffered with depression, anxiety for quite a long time. And before I had my son at 38 weeks pregnant, I had quite a big episode of anxiety where I was put on Valium for a week and I was quite unstable. And so I I kind of, I was fine by the time I went to labor, but I kept saying to her, you know, I've got anxiety and I feel like I'm about to have a anxiety attack I need to get out of this space and I think too when you're trying to have a drug-free birth you rely a lot on a lot of different other things so music and shower and bath and hot compresses and just really creating a zone where you feel safe and you feel comfortable and you've got all your things that you need 
you know, to get you through. And I guess I didn't have any of that. And so the pain I was experiencing because I was told over and over again that I wasn't in labour, I thought that something was happening. I thought that I was in great danger and or my baby was in great danger. So I thought something's happening to both of us and this is not not good. And so it kind of wasn't really until this went on for probably five or six hours where we kept begging to be transferred down to the birthing suites and she kept saying, you can't, you don't meet the hospital policy, which I then found out once I went through the complaints process with the hospital that that's not a hospital policy at all, especially as a second time um, pregnant person, especially as someone who's been induced that obviously your chances of um, the baby coming quite quickly once you get going is very high. So it wasn't until probably this went on for hours and it wasn't until later in the evening that we knew there was a changeover happening with the midwives and so we thought let's let's wait until changeover happens, we get a new midwife and we got a new midwife and she came in and by that point I had just lost it. Like I was... As I said, like I think when you're trying to have a job pre-birth, it's a mental game. Like you've got to stay in the game mentally, otherwise it's kind of all over. And I'd lost it. I was begging for an epidural, which is not something that I would have ever wanted. And you know, I was saying, "There's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with my baby. We're not going to make it. I need an epidural. Like I need all these things." And she's like, "Well, let me just assess you really quickly." So she assessed me, and she was like, "Oh no, no, you're eight centimeters. Your baby's coming. We need to get you down to maternity." sorry down to the birthing suites right now because we can't deliver the baby up here which I was like um okay and I just didn't have that time I guess for my mind to catch up in in terms of going from being told for five hours you're not in labor your baby's not you know your body's not doing it to then being told oh no no you actually are in labor and your baby's coming very quickly so she she said I'm just going to go call them and tell them you're coming get everything ready and then you know, that transition, I was obviously, I was clearly in transition of saying, like, I can't do it, I need an epidural, there's something wrong. Um, and I went to the bathroom. I said, I need to go to the bathroom to my husband. He's like, okay, okay. And then, you know, everyone kind of knows what that often means. And um, he, I started pushing on the toilet and he kind of opened the door and was like, you're pushing, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it, I'm pushing. And I think too, with my first, I had to really push like I had to really do it whereas with my second I found that I, my body just did it I hadn't I had no control over it my body was you know doing it I was making those big loud kind of cow noises as you do when you're pushing and so he kind of ran out and hit the emergency buzzer and then once it hit the buzzer you know everyone comes into the room and I got rushed down to the birthing suite and um I had him I had him on the floor. He came quite quickly, but it was kind of like that emergency um, situation where he went into distress and they couldn't find his heartbeat. So they had to, they were like, you know, you've got to keep pushing in between your contractions. And he came out and he was, he didn't cry for a few minutes and had to kind of get the um, sucker thing to get all the fluid out of him. And I lost quite a lot of blood afterwards. And so I was passing out and, it was just a really scary um, experience, I guess, of feeling completely unheard and unsupported and really alone. In And I felt so robbed of what I knew birth could be. Like I knew it can be this experience of there's nothing else like it in the world and I can never get that 
you know, I can never get that back again. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were both quite, my baby and myself were both quite unwell for the first three days of his life as well. And then I also um, developed PTSD in the kind of ongoing oh six goodness. months after he was born. Jeez, that's the most stress I've ever been under. So listening to a story, I can't imagine actually you going through that. Uh, what were there? Were the midwives reprimanded in any way? Like, did you get a discount or? <laughs> so that's through the public public mm. system here in Australia. Okay. Um, and I went through like the, a formal complaints process after that, and that process itself was quite the experience of just the process of the complaints process was quite terrible but I guess that's not surprising and they so we went through a few different rounds where they have to investigate so they have to firstly they do an internal investigation um, about what happened and if that person was following protocol we went in for a debrief with the like the head of the hospital in the maternity division there and it was kind of discovered that the person had lied a few times, that midwife had lied a few times. So she told me that I couldn't transfer down also because they were full, but she'd never actually contacted anyone. That wasn't recorded and there was no policy around how far dilated you had to be or your water's being broken. So that was also incorrect. So I think she was given, I, I think, what they kind of call here in Australia, like performance management, where they, they put you on a plan to assess and manage your performance in your job. And I kind of had the opportunity to hear from her and to put in writing the impact that her behaviour had had on me and my baby and my life and my mental health. And she had a chance to to respond to that in terms of how she felt from hearing that impact statement, I guess. See, that's wild. So I, my idea, I think going into birth for me is worlds away from your ideal, right? So I I was induced both times because I was high risk pregnancy. Uh, I have lupus. And so I had two medicated births, epidural both times. My first birth was quite traumatic for me. The second one was so easy and it was like a fairy tale medicated birth i was what in active labor for 45 minutes and i pushed for 5 minutes and it was done and it was so lovely and it just you know there's trauma with every type of birth and there can be with any type of birth no matter what kind of birth you want and i i wonder about the support that you had after what does recovery look like for you because I know with my first it wasn't a hundredth as traumatic as yours was yet I still had postpartum anxiety so yeah yeah. I think it's it's hard like it I think it's hard too because you kind of mixed in with the first the early the early weeks of postpartum where you know you're tired and you know, you're feeling and your hormones are all over the place. And so it, it kind of wasn't until he got to being six months old that I realised I wasn't okay. And the things that I noticed that were stand out for me that made me go, I'm not okay, were things like I was really triggered by really random things. So, like, really random things throughout the day would take me, take me back to different moments in the birth and I was experiencing things really really vivid nightmares repeatedly over and over again where I would 
see um like go through the birth and I'd go through the part where they couldn't find his heartbeat and then he would come out and he didn't make it and I was getting up and waking him up like four to five times a night to check that he was okay that was the standout thing for me was the constant and he was my first never slept but he was my good sleeper and here I was like getting up and waking him up constantly (laughs) um that that was the big thing for me where I was like I'm not okay this is there is something going on here and that's what made me made me get help yeah okay leo we're just going to take a quick break to let everyone know who we are supported by we are supported by mabel's labels frustrated by getting their children's things lost mixed up and leaving home never to return julie cole and three other mom friends knew they could do better than just scribbling their kids names on some masking tape from there the idea for a new product was born the very best personalized waterproof name labels and tags that are equally cute as they are adorable. And I don't like throwing around terms like indestructible or they can go through anything, but they pretty much can. Mabel's Labels is an award-winning, market-leading company loved by moms and kids alike. Lucy loves them because they're adorable. She can help me design them and they come with shapes like hearts and hedgehogs, cherries, whatever she likes. What do you mean she can help design them? Well, she can help me work online and try to make our own labels together. I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, it's amazing. And I love them because not only does the line of products feature baby bottle labels, allergy and medical alert bracelets, sports labels, household labels, and seasonal items, but Shane, like you said, they're extremely durable. Laundry, dishwasher, microwave safe, and they're 100% guaranteed. They take a licking and keep on ticking. And I think I just made that up. So <laughs> so head on over to MabelsLabels.ca to start creating your very own labels and use the promo code ThisFamilyTree15 for 15% off your order. They deliver internationally and offer free standard shipping in Canada and the U.S. Again, that's MabelsLabels.ca and ThisFamilyTree15. But we are also supported by Mini Miosh. Mini Miosh is a premium, organic, ethically made, and sustainable kids and babies clothing company founded and created in Toronto. It's all Lucy wears, and I'm almost wishing we never even got her into it because there's no getting her out of it now. <laughs> no, she wears them around the house. She wears them when we go out, and she wears them to bed because not only is everything timeless and beautiful and so well made, but it's so comfortable for the girls. And what I love is that they can be passed from child to child regardless of gender. Their organic cotton fabrics are are knit and dyed locally using GOTS certified organic cotton and low impact non-toxic dyes. They're on a mission to leave the planet better off for our little ones than when they arrived on it. And they believe that every little bit counts. You can find the company online at minimiosh.com or at minimiosh on Instagram and Facebook. Use the promo code thisfamilytree15 for 15% off your order. This is available in Canada and the US. And again, that's minimiosh.com and thisfamilytree15. But now let's get back to our interview with Leah. So you've had both ends of the spectrum, magical birth, the absolute nightmare. Mm. Now going into the third, uh, you're in the pregnancy, the birth is coming up. Has it changed your view of having a natural birth? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting and I get asked this a little bit from people and the one thing I like I've noticed too being pregnant as a first time mum and because I'm like I guess I'm like a little bit of a hippie in terms of like a, you know I encapsulate my placenta and I don't want <laughs> drugs and all those you know typical hippie things but you know as a first time mum I never listened to 
if anyone wanted to tell me about a negative birth experience, I was like, I don't want to hear it. I had my walls up. I just want to bathe myself in positivity, you know. And I, but I think there's a real power and knowledge that you can take from listening to people's experiences that don't have to definitely be traumatic, but just that haven't, I don't like to say go to plan because I think, you know, birth, what is, it can't go to plan. What is the plan? But, you know, some experiences that perhaps have been difficult or challenging or hard, it, it is good to listen to those to, to know what to do if you are in a situation where you feel like you're not getting the care or the support that you need. But I think too that I went through quite intensive therapy to get through my PTSD and so I feel like I've really worked through that. And so going into this this, um, labour and birth for a third time, like I feel really good. So I feel good about it and I feel feel excited and I feel like it, I feel like I've got a doula and I feel like I've got my team. And it's different too. Like I really surrounded myself. I'm going to a different hospital. So I'm making sure that I'm not going back to the place where it happened. I'm going to a different hospital. I've got two midwives and a doula and they're my team. And I feel like I've made a really good support network around me for when that time comes. That's fantastic. So that means natural birth would be what you're going for still yeah yeah nice. like the, okay, thing, cool. the thing too that I always say to people is that like that traumatic experience it it, it wasn't it wasn't because I was induced and so when people were like oh people place this fear about induction I'm like no not at all like it, my problems weren't that I was induced and it wasn't that I had a natural birth the problem was the systems and the policies and the person, you know, that's what it came down to. And if I had been supported and been allowed to go into a a space where I felt safe and supported and had been given what I should have had, then that induction and that birth would have been beautiful and it wouldn't have been anywhere near as hard as my first one because it would have only been, you know, six or seven hours and done, you know. So I think that, yeah, it's, I feel, I feel, I feel good about it. So I'm, I'm excited. I mean, I'm also kind of like, oh God, because I know what's yeah, Of course. Oh my goodness. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and, and the PTSD you went through, like I only know PTSD is the expression and what the acronym means. I have no idea what, what it's actually like. Is that something that's just managed or can it be cured? I think it's, I don't, I wouldn't say it can be cured. So I still get triggered by certain things sometimes, but I think it's definitely much more than anxiety and depression. I think medication helps, can help a lot with seeing a therapist. But I think PTSD, if you have PTSD from a very specific trauma experience, and I think really the main way you're going to get through that is definitely by receiving intensive therapy. And I, I don't think I'm cured. I think that there's definitely things that are always going to come up for me around remembering things that happen in that birth. Um, but I definitely think that I feel like I've closed the box on it a little bit. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I've closed the lid on on that and I feel I don't feel like I'm carrying it in completely on my shoulders into this next birth. I think I will a little. And I think as I get further along and the birth gets closer, like I think I will have, you know, bits of fear start to creep in, but I, I'm not – feeling that fear from the get-go yeah yeah I think that's natural and that's healthy too to to have that a little bit you know and I I definitely know like I was I was feeling it both like both births sorry I was feeling 
my first especially. <laughs> but the way that I would calm myself was by watching other women give birth online. Like I watched hours of video of women giving birth in like home births and in water and things like that. I totally knew I didn't want to give birth that way. But watching women who were doing hypnobirthing like you made me feel so calm and it really made me feel powerful. And honestly, in this conversation with you, I'm I'm 100% genuinely in awe of your resilience and your strength because that is a hell of a lot to go through and I just I don't know where I'd be had I had I gone through that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I I want to know you know when you think about motherhood and you think about the process that we have to go through and everything that you've been through from endo to your fertility journey to, you know, different experiences giving birth and a traumatic one. What do you hope for women that are maybe going through this themselves and going through this the first time? Do you hope that it changes in any way or improves? Yeah, I do. It's it's a hard one. I think it's like with the platform that I have and when I sh- every time I share my experience about with my birth with with August I'm just inundated with people who've had such similar experiences and it makes me rage because you feel like, and I feel like even just from a personal point of view, I'm like, well, why did I do all this from going through the complaint system, which was hard and it was horrible. And it took a year. It took an entire year. The whole process took one year. I literally got the final closing of the case on his first birthday, oh it was gosh. the weirdest thing. And I was like, really, you really have to just, are you serious? You could not make this any worse than sending it on the birthday of the event where I got like a formal apology from the director of the hospital. And But I think it's by sharing this experience, I guess I just want women to know that, you know, birth can be amazing and it can be empowering and and how important it is to surround yourself with a really supportive network and whether that is a doula I think I don't know what sort of your maternity programs are like here but I'm really now a big supporter of midwifery care where you are given just one midwife and that's your person throughout your labor and your birth because you are able to establish such a beautiful connection with that person but I also just want women to know that if you are in a situation where you feel like you're not being supported and your care is not where it should be that you can raise your hand tell your husband to you know scream shout and I, I felt like I was doing a lot of that but the key thing that I wasn't doing was I wasn't asking to see I wasn't saying give me another midwife I do not want you and that's what you can do in our system in Australia is to say, I do not want to see you back into this room, go and get someone else. And that's what I didn't do. And I guess by sharing, I just hope that women know that don't ever feel bad or anything for saying to someone, I don't want to see you go get someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's no time to be polite at that moment. I no, guess. no, no. And I'm not that much of a polite person either. So <laughs> <laughs> like I'm pretty like, I, I think, and I talked about a lot, a lot in my therapy where I had all this guilt and shame for the way I behaved in my labor because like I'm someone who speaks out. Like, you know, if you go to a, I'm that annoying person when you go to a cafe and your order's wrong and I'm like, oh, sorry, this isn't the right thing. <laughs> like that's me. And so I kept, you know, saying to my um, psychologist, like why didn't I ask to someone else? Why didn't I scream until they sent another midwife in? Like I don't, that's in my nature to do that. 
And so I felt so much guilt around that. And my psychologist kept saying, uh, you were trying to give birth. So you're not going to be in your normal sane mind that you would be you were in your birthing mind, which is very different to your everyday mind. And so that was something I really had to work on, like letting go of that. Getting that letter a year later, was there any vindication or relief or closure? Like a little bit. It's two different ways because there was a little bit, like just to have that acknowledgement from, you know, the highest person at the hospital to to note in a very legal way because clearly I would, a lawyer has written this letter, but to say that, you know, they recognise that they're, things weren't done the way they should have been and they apologised profusely for the way I'd been treated, the way I'd been treated afterwards, which wasn't very good either and the experience that I had. But I also had this really funny, weird moment about maybe six months or even a year after I got the letter where I was watching Grey's Anatomy and (laughs) they were saying, um, you know, oh, how you get rid of someone. There was an episode and I think something had happened with the patient and they were saying like, oh, how do you get rid of a person who's going to take a lawsuit out on you is you just send them a letter apologising from the, the director of the hospital. And I was like, oh, that's what that was. <laughs> I was like, it's clicked now. That's, that's what that was. That's, that's that, that letter was, was just to stop me taking it, you know, any further. So I think it does help and I think the process of it helps as well, Mm -hmm. just to to feel, finally feel heard. Mm -hmm. And I think for anybody listening, you know, a huge takeaway from this entire conversation, from all of your experiences and my own, would just be advocate for yourself because we are the only people that knows exactly what's going on with our bodies, especially in such a delicate time, like giving birth to your child. Nobody else knows. If you know something is happening, if you know something is wrong, you need to say something because – Nobody else is going to be there for you like you can be. And, you know, it takes you to even tell your husband to say like, babe, you need to go and do this. But if you don't say that, I think a lot of women get freaked out and I am one to get kind of like freaked out and second guess myself. But don't second guess yourself. Just go with your intuition. Go with your instincts because it's it's not a situation you want to mess around in. No, not at all. But Leah, if our listeners want to go and check out what you're doing, follow along, where can they find you and your projects online? Yeah, so I'm, you can jump on Instagram. I'm the dearest days. So the dot dearest dot days. It's a bit complicated. Um, (laughs) But yeah, you can jump on there and follow me along. I love sharing my life as a mom of two, working mom of two. I share a lot of, um, my fashion, I'm really into fashion and little tiny sustainability tips and just general, you know, chaos of life with kids. <laughs> Which is about to get more chaotic for you. And yeah, we wish you all the best in that. This is so exciting. Yeah, but- thank you so much for mm-hmm. sharing this. And I sincerely hope your next your birth is like the smoothest <laughs> one ever. Yeah, me too. I think I, I think it will be. I feel good about it. Yeah. Good. Oh, good. Good. Leah, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We really appreciate it. You have a it was great very day. nice to meet you. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. Right, Take care. Bye, Leah. Nice meeting you. Leah Williams. So that having gone through childbirth twice, that was always my worst fear and I haven't been able to ever pick somebody's brain like was I was with fear? her having a birth like that mm. and I, I was never able to pick somebody's brain like we just picked hers about that experience and 
again, she was so warm and so candid that I just felt so comfortable doing that. And I mean, and like we were saying off the top, it's such a good reminder that you need to advocate for yourself when you're a mom because you're the only one that knows what's going on with you and what you need. Yeah, but I mean, like Sophie, just a story of strength and resilience and wild bravery. But now we're at the mailbag segment, and this segment is where we answer listener questions. When I say we, I mean she, as in Alex Cunningham answers your questions. She does the research, and I'm just along for the ride. Now, Alex, what is our first question? First question, what is the dumbest thing that has sparked a fight? I know. I'm going to say mine, Shane. I want you to think of something different. I'm going to say making a TikTok video and not getting each other's quote unquote vision and then both getting in such a mood because of it and fighting. And it's like in the grand scheme of things, so inconsequential, but was enough to cause a tiff. Oh, trust me. TikTok is probably one of the least dumb things I get in a fight about. (laughs) I have an uncanny ability to make an argument out of nothing, anything very inconsequential things. And Listen, I come from a field of directing. Video is my entire life. When somebody's doing something and I don't feel like they're putting in the due diligence or the thought, (laughs) that really bothers me. Like, if I'm going to swim, I want to get wet. So sometimes I feel like we enter a TikTok and we just, there's no game plan, there's no vision, there's no clarity, and it's just... Like, I don't want to waste our time. Shane, are we going to fight about TikTok again or are you going to tell me the dumbest thing we've ever fought about? Alex, can I explain... (laughs) My process, like part of this is bringing up a topic and having a conversation. <laughs> Can I just do it? Sure. But, but what do you think of that? What no, well, again, I think it comes down to vision. It's like if I'm directing and my vision is to have you be a little off the cuff, then you want something when solid. When was your vision for me to be off the cuff? Well, today I was trying to get you to do something a little off the cuff and it stressed you out. What was it? I wanted you to be like a disappointed while I said something in the camera. And then there was another uh, TikTok that we were doing where I wanted If you're looking for me to be disappointed while you say something to the camera, I can nail that. Trust me. No acting required. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, I think it's not seeing each other's vision. Because remember when we were doing the home sense thing, I didn't see your vision and I was like getting all frustrated at you and... But when somebody has a field of expertise, mm-hmm. I would like to think you might have a different type of respect for them. I and, respect you. And when you saw the HomeSense video, did you not think it was a cut above? Of course it was a like, cut above. It was fantastic. Like the messy room video and the HomeSense video, both of those are a little bit of a cleaner, different directing style. No, they were very good. And you, they were la- very good. you laugh, but I do this for a living. I know. <laughs> Okay, what's what's your thing? Give me your thing. Oh, oh, what what's the dumbest argument? People probably can tell how I am at arguing. Um, okay, I would say the dumbest thing is you have a quality where you will talk at terrible moments during TV shows. <laughs> Like sometimes there'll be a montage in a, a TV show, and that's a great time to talk or, right. or tell a joke. You'll say it at key plot points. And it will actually make me pause and stupid arguments have happened over that. Yeah, because you gave way too much pleasure from pulling out the remote, pausing it and saying, will you say that again? And then rewinding it. You love rewinding it and you derive too much pleasure from making that point. Something about... Why? I think it's because growing up, TV and film was my life and my art form and my passion. Everything goes back to that. Why are you laughing at me? (laughs) I'm just thinking of some of the shows that you've rewound with us watching. Like The Bachelor. (laughs) Like I have reverence for The Bachelor. (laughs) 
I'm just going to say, I think that you've rewound it specifically to hear somebody say, thanks for being vulnerable, which yeah. is you what you hear a thousand times an episode on The They Bachelor. could have been something saying something different than that. <laughs> Next question. Would you get the COVID-19 vaccine while breastfeeding? So yes. There you go. Yes, from Shane. And, you know, in these kinds of circumstances, always talk to your doctor because you might have extenuating health circumstances, whatever. But the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, they have a huge article on their website about it, last updated on March 4th. And it states that pregnant, breastfeeding, and lactating women should definitely get the vaccine. It also states a few other interesting things which I want to read to you. So pregnant women are at risk of more severe illness than their non-pregnant peers. And it's been scientifically proven not to cause infertility. I, I guess there were rumors going around online or something like that, that it would cause infertility, but that's been disproven. So don't worry, you can have it and still get pregnant eventually. There weren't any tests done on pregnant and lactating women, but they can make conclusions based on other mRNA vaccines that you know people have been getting for years. Plus, from other countries that are ahead of their vaccine schedules, like more so than Canada for sure, the data is starting to slowly compile and show that you know it is safe. One other very interesting thing, if you are breastfeeding or nursing in any way, pumping, antibodies in the T cells that are stimulated by the vaccine may passively transfer into your breast milk. And following the vaccination against other viruses, again, this has only been shown on you know, conclusions they could make with other vaccines. The antibodies are detectable in milk within five to seven days, therefore protecting your infant from the SARS-CoV-2 infection. So you might actually be able to actually protect your baby by getting the vaccine and breastfeeding. So, so let's open up the floodgates to all the anti-vaxxers attacking this <laughs> podcast and say, yes, get it. <laughs> all right, next question. I just started following you and I'm totally obsessed. Where are you guys from? Well, I never felt weird about saying where we were from until now when somebody's asking us pointedly. So I'll just say the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area. Yeah, and I'll say Hamilton, Ontario, just to clarify <laughs> a little bit closer than that. Yeah, we often talk about we're from yeah. Hamilton. Yeah. We're from Hamilton. Yeah, we're Born from and Hamilton. raised, both born and raised. I, I spend a lot of my days uh, comm <laughs> commuting to Toronto. So I, And I lived in Toronto for four years. But yeah, now I'm back into Hamilton with my sweetheart. Hey, hey. All right, next question. Once things open up, where do you want to take the kids on vacation? So we've talked about where you and I want to go on vacation. Where, Italy? Well, yeah, Amalfi Italy, Coast? your Greece, the Amalfi Coast. Yeah, well, we've I think that'd that be amazing. Stanley Tucci show, so. Oh, so inspiring. And here's the thing. I mean, ideally, we take, well, I don't know if it's ideally, but maybe we take the kids too and just get a big villa and we just have a big family fun party and, you know, bring grandparents to watch the kids so you and I can go out what, at night. Is it Italy or Greece? Where do you want to go? No, we'll see where I can get a better deal. Do you think Stanley Tucci is a good host? Yes. I thought you were going to ask if I think he's hot. Do you think he's hot? Yeah. You do? Yes, very. Well, see, he reminds me of Jason Schwartzman without hair. Do you think Jason Schwartzman <laughs> is hot? No. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. There's something about the Tooch. Something about the Tooch. Who do you think's a better host, Bourdain or Stanley? Oh, I love Bourdain. There, there was oh, no it's host. it's not even close. Yeah, there's like, no host like Bourdain. Tucci will just eat a tortellini and I'll be like, oh. This is great. <laughs> and he, he says the same thing every single time. Mind you, great show. Love it. It's such a comfort, relaxing, soothing show to watch. But it is nothing like Parts Unknown, which was such an adventure show, more than even a culinary show. Yeah, no, he, he was a master of his craft. He was so good. And he was so involved, too, in the writing and the editing and the... Uh, yeah, I can't imagine having the work ethic. Like, talk about, like, production. Mm -hmm. 
Bourdain and you would not get along in, in working with TikToks. I'm telling you that right now. I like the alternate universe where I'm making TikToks with Anthony Bourdain, though. If it if, <laughs> if you were dating Bourdain in 2021, if he was still alive, which I wish he was, you would be making TikToks with him. Should would you be dating? Anyhow, if it was up to the kids, Lou is at such a great age for Disney. We took her last year before the lockdown and she was already loving it then. She wasn't even two. She was one and a half. And now, you know, by the time we can leave again, she'd be just under four. She would lose her mind if we took Lou to Disney. I'm saying like if it was up to the kids, she would love to go back to Disney. Oh, yeah. Disney, I would love to take Lou to Disney. And maybe by the time we can travel again, they'll have a new Raya themed ride. Which would be cool. That'd be a riot. Mm. All right. Next question. What age does a divorce impact kids the most? Shane, do you want to take a guess? Six. Ooh. How old were you when your parents got divorced? Six. <laughs> Sorry. It's I no was. funny. So according to Healthline, uh, elementary school age, so between ages six and 12, is the toughest age, arguably, for children to deal with separation and divorce of their parents. That's because they're old enough to remember good times or perceive good times and their feelings of just having kind of a united family. But they're also old enough to understand conflict. And kids at that age, they often have a hard time separating themselves from the reasons that their parents are divorcing. And they center a lot of their questions on them. Like, what did I do to cause this? Are you still going to love me? Why are you leaving me? Things like that. So they have a hard time understanding that they didn't have a role in it. And this can lead to depression in your kid, whether it's short term, long term. And the effects of what happened during these years can impact future emotional well-being. Your child might become withdrawn, uncommunicative and anxious. Of course, this isn't every kid. But I think that children in this age group, according to the article, are at higher risk for that kind of thing. Yeah, I'd love to meet and talk to the Shane who had parents who were still together. It could have been worse, though, because the way they were arguing Mm -hmm. was ridiculous. Yeah, no, it it was an interesting article, actually. And it talked about how, you know, it got into like young kids and how they actually can remember their memories start earlier than we previously thought. And it's just it's wildly fascinating. Um, But yeah, I guess if you're going to divorce, try to avoid that uh, six to 12 age group. Do I say that? No. No. Yeah, I I would say a fifth birthday party. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Chuck E. Cheese and getting served with papers. All right. Next question. Are you superstitious? I will say only in sports am I superstitious. And even then, I don't know if like I'm actually superstitious, if I actually believe the things, but I definitely do superstitious things when I play sports. What about you? Not really. When I was a kid, I had some tendencies where I would like flick light switches off a certain amount of time and tap things. But I don't really do that at all anymore. Could that have been OCD well, from the divorce? I think I think even before that, I was doing strange things. But yeah, I was just doing things that were maybe more superstitious related okay. than actually like a condition. Mm-hmm. See, I believe in like aliens and some kind of afterlife thing. But when it comes that's to... That's not su- superstitious though. No, no, no that's, that's not what I'm saying. But I believe in those things. But when it comes to superstitions... I don't really have any, just like astrology. Like I'm not really into that. I don't believe in a ghost. I'll believe in a ghost. Sure. I'll believe in a ghost. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Next question. Do you ever think it's appropriate for your partner to talk to their ex about your current relationship? For me, there's a bottom line here. It depends how you feel about it. If you as the partner are okay with your current partner talking to their ex about your relationship, then that's fine. 
if you are uncomfortable with it at all, like in any remote way, you tell them and then they stop doing it or they don't do it to begin with. But it's all based on how you feel about it and I think what their relationship is with the ex and what elements of your relationship they're talking about. Yeah, but you have to trust the ex almost more than you even trust your partner. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would be so uncomfortable, I would think. Yeah, yeah. And I just, I think too, maybe it's not good to talk to your ex about negative things about your current partner because you just... I don't know. I just think it's a respect thing. Even talking to like your best friend, if yeah. it's not, it, it can create this weird toxicity within the friend group where they all of a sudden they don't like your wife because it's more fun to vent when things aren't going well, right? Yeah. And they're not hearing of all the great things about your wife because it's not as cool to be like, oh, she's so great. So, and sometimes it's funnier to tell a story about your mm-hmm. wife that when things aren't going well, but I don't even think that should happen. No, no, I agree. And I, I think that might be. A hot take, actually, but I I do agree with you there. Uh, Final question. If Shane gets an eyebrow ring tomorrow, is it a deal breaker? So this person is asking this question because on, was it our last date night? No, it was our last real episode. So on our last podcast, Shane asked if he had shown up with an eyebrow ring on our first date, if I still would have been into him and I probably said no. So if you went and got an eyebrow ring tomorrow, I wouldn't break up with you. Of course, you've got a lot on the line, but I would get you checked out because... I think there would be something wrong, like wrong, and we might have to see a mental health expert because to go and just get an eyebrow ring knowing I hate them at this time in your life would be a heck of a move. Well, I think if I got an eyebrow ring tomorrow, I'd be getting checked out (laughs) by other women. (laughs) That took me a second. Because band guys are hot. Do band guys get eyebrow rings anymore? If you're in a band like, I don't know, uh, you've got the lips of an angel. What band is that? I don't know. Lips of an Angel? Are they called <laughs> Slither or something? Slither? Hinder. It's hinder. Okay, Slither, Hinder. Sounds like a band where that would be the you song. You don't know Hinder? No. I gotta play this. Oh my gosh, I know this song. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I just want to get to the chorus. Man, that song's better than I was thinking it was. Yeah, yeah, no eyebrow ring, babe. You do have the lips of an angel, though. Thank you. I'll take it. Are we done here? We're done. So that is our episode. Please leave us a five-star review if you have the time. It really does make a difference. But right now, I'm going to read a iTunes comment that was left, and hopefully this will inspire you to leave your own iTunes comment. Alex and Shane are the ultimate couple goals. I love listening to them talk parenting and how they get their guests to open up to discuss things we haven't heard before. Oh. Yeah, I haven't heard that one, and I appreciate that. So they're basically saying we're good interviewers, Shane. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening to This, this Family, Family Tree, Tree Podcast. Podcast, episode 77.